What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 50 of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. As the Countess Gemini was not acquainted with the ancient monuments, Isabel occasionally offered to introduce her to these interesting relics, and to give their afternoon drive an antiquarian aim. The Countess, who professed to think her sister-in-law a prodigy of learning, never made an objection, and gazed at masses of Roman brickwork as patiently as if they had been mounds of modern drapery. She had not the historic sense, though she had in some directions the anecdotic, and as regards herself the apologetic, but she was so delighted to be in Rome that she only desired to float with the current. She would gladly have passed an hour every day in the damp darkness of the baths of Titus if it had been a condition of her remaining at Palazzo Rocanera. Isabel, however, was not a severe Cicerone. She used to visit the ruins chiefly because they offered an excuse for talking about other matters than the love affairs of the ladies of Florence, as to which her companion was never weary of offering information. It must be added that, during these visits, the Countess forbade herself every form of active research. Her preference was to sit in the carriage and exclaim that everything was most interesting. It was in this manner that she had hitherto examined the Colosseum, to the infinite regret of her niece, who, with all the respect that she owed her, could not see why she should not descend from the vehicle and enter the building. Pansy had so little chance to ramble that her view of the case was not wholly disinterested. It may be divined that she had a secret hope that, once inside, her parents' guest might be induced to climb to the upper tiers. There came a day when the Countess announced her willingness to undertake this feat, a mild afternoon in March when the windy month expressed itself in occasional puffs of spring. The three ladies went into the Colosseum together, but Isabel left her companions to wander over the place. She had often ascended to those desolate ledges from which the Roman crowd used to bellow applause, and where now the wild flowers, when they are allowed, bloom in the deep crevices, and to-day she felt weary and disposed to sit in the despoiled arena. It made an intermission, too, for the Countess often asked more from one's attention than she gave in return. 
and Isabel believed that when she was alone with her niece she let the dust gather for a moment on the ancient scandals of the Arnide. She so remained below, therefore, while Pansy guided her undiscriminating aunt to the steep brick staircase at the foot of which the custodian unlocks the tall wooden gate. The great enclosure was half in shadow. The western sun brought out the pale red tone of the great blocks of travertine, the latent colour that is the only living element in the immense ruin. Here and there wandered a peasant or a tourist, looking up at the far skyline, where, in the clear stillness, a multitude of swallows kept circling and plunging. Isabel presently became aware that one of the other visitors, planted in the middle of the arena, had turned his attention to her own person, and was looking at her with a certain little poise of the head, which she had some weeks before perceived to be characteristic of baffled but indestructible purpose. Such an attitude to-day could only belong to Mr. Edward Rosier, and this gentleman proved, in fact, to have been considering the question of speaking to her. When he had assured himself that she was unaccompanied, he drew near, remarking that though she would not answer his letters, she would perhaps not wholly close her ears to his spoken eloquence. She replied that her stepdaughter was close at hand, and that she could only give him five minutes, whereupon he took out his watch and sat down upon a broken block. "'It's very soon told,' said Edward Rosier. "'I've sold all my bibelots.' Isabel gave instinctively an exclamation of horror. It was as if he had told her he had had all his teeth drawn. "'I've sold them by auction at the Hotel Drouot,' he went on. "'The sale took place three days ago, and they've telegraphed me the result. It's magnificent.' "'I'm glad to hear it, but I wish you had kept your pretty things.' "'I have the money instead. Fifty thousand dollars. Will Mr. Osmond think me rich enough now?' "'Is it for that you did it?' Isabel asked gently. "'For what else in the world could it be? That's the only thing I think of. I went to Paris and made my arrangements. I couldn't stop for the sale. I couldn't have seen them going off. I think it would have killed me. But I put them into good hands, and they brought high prices. I should tell you I have kept my enamels. Now I have the money in my pocket, and he can't say I'm poor!' The young man exclaimed defiantly. "'He'll say now that you're not wise,' said Isabel as if Gilbert Osmond had never said this before. Rosier gave her a sharp look. "'Do you mean that without my bibelots I'm nothing? Do you mean that they were the best thing about me? That's what they told me in Paris. Oh, they were very frank about it. But they hadn't seen her.' "'My dear friend, you deserve to succeed,' said Isabel very kindly. "'You say that so sadly that it's the same as if you said I shouldn't.' and he questioned her eyes with the clear trepidation of his own. He had the air of a man who knows he has been the talk of Paris for a week, and is full half a head taller in consequence, but who also has a painful suspicion that in spite of this increase of stature, one or two persons still have the perversity to think him diminutive. "'I know what happened here while I was away,' he went on. "'What does Mr. Osmond expect after she has refused Lord Warburton?' Isabel debated that she'll marry another nobleman what other nobleman one that he'll pick out rosier slowly got up putting his watch into his waistcoat pocket you're laughing at some one but this time i don't think it's at me i didn't mean to laugh said isabel i laugh very seldom now you had better go away i feel very safe rosier declared without moving 
this might be but it evidently made him feel more so to make the announcement in rather a loud voice balancing himself a little complacently on his toes and looking all round the coliseum as if it were filled with an audience suddenly isabel saw him change colour there was more of an audience than he had suspected she turned and perceived that her two companions had returned from their excursion you must really go away she said quickly ah my dear lady pity me edward rosier murmured in a voice strangely at variance with the announcement i have just quoted and then he added eagerly like a man who in the midst of his misery is seized by a happy thought is that lady the countess gemini i've a great desire to be presented to her isabel looked at him a moment she has no influence with her brother ah what a monster you make him out and rosier faced the countess who advanced in front of pansy with an animation partly due perhaps to the fact that she perceived her sister-in-law to be engaged in a conversation with a very pretty young man i'm glad you've kept your enamels isabel called as she left him she went straight to pansy who on seeing edward rosier had stopped short with lowered eyes we'll go back to the carriage she said gently yes it's getting late pansy returned more gently still and she went on without a murmur without faltering or glancing back isabel however allowing herself this last liberty saw that a meeting had immediately taken place between the countess and mr rosier he had removed his hat and was bowing and smiling he had evidently introduced himself while the countess's expressive back displayed to isabel's eye a gracious inclination these facts none the less were presently lost to sight for isabel and pansy took their places again in the carriage pansy who faced her stepmother at first kept her eyes fixed on her lap then she raised them and rested them on isabel's there shone out of each of them a little melancholy ray a spark of timid passion which touched isabel to the heart at the same time a wave of envy passed over her soul as she compared the tremulous longing the definite ideal of the child with her own dry despair poor little pansy she affectionately said oh never mind pansy answered in the tone of eager apology and then there was a silence the countess was a long time coming did you show your aunt everything and did she enjoy it isabel asked at last yes i showed her everything i think she was very much pleased and you're not tired i hope oh no thank you i'm not tired the countess still remained behind so that isabel requested the footman to go into the coliseum and tell her they were waiting he presently returned with the announcement that the signora contessa begged them not to wait she would come home in a cab about a week after this lady's quick sympathies had enlisted themselves with mr rosier isabel going rather late to dress for dinner found pansy sitting in her room the girl seemed to have been awaiting her she got up from her low chair pardon my taking the liberty she said in a small voice it will be the last for some time her voice was strange and her eyes widely opened had an excited frightened look you're not going away isabel exclaimed i'm going to the convent to the convent pansy drew nearer till she was near enough to put her arms round isabel and rest her head on her shoulder she stood this way a moment perfectly still but her companion could feel her tremble the quiver of her little body expressed everything she was unable to say 
Isabel nevertheless pressed her. Why are you going to the convent? Because Papa thinks it best. He says a young girl's better every now and then for making a little retreat. He says the world, always the world, is very bad for a young girl. This is just a chance for a little seclusion, a little reflection. Pansy spoke in short, detached sentences, as if she could scarce trust herself, and then she added with a triumph of self-control, I think Papa's right. I've been so much in the world this winter. Her announcement had a strange effect on Isabel. It seemed to carry a larger meaning than the girl herself knew. When was this decided? she asked. I've heard nothing of it. Papa told me half an hour ago. He thought it better it shouldn't be talked too much about in advance. Madame Catherine's to come for me at a quarter past seven, and I'm only to take two frocks. It's only for a few weeks. I'm sure it will be very good. I shall find all those ladies who used to be so kind to me, and I shall see the little girls who are being educated. I'm very fond of little girls," said Pansy, with an effect of diminutive grandeur. And I'm also very fond of Mother Catherine. I shall be very quiet and think a great deal. Isabel listened to her, holding her breath. She was almost awestruck. Think of me sometimes. Oh, come and see me soon! cried Pansy. And the cry was very different from the heroic remarks of which she had just delivered herself. Isabel could say nothing more. She understood nothing. She only felt how little she yet knew her husband. Her answer to his daughter was a long, tender kiss. Half an hour later she learned from her maid that Madame Catherine had arrived in a cab and had departed again with the signorina. On going to the drawing-room before dinner, she found the Countess Gemini alone, and this lady characterized the incident by exclaiming, with a wonderful toss of the head, En voilà, ma chère, une pause. But if it was an affectation, she was at a loss to see what her husband affected. She could only dimly perceive that he had more traditions than she supposed. It had become her habit to be so careful as to what she said to him, that strange as it may appear, she hesitated, for several minutes after he had come in, to allude to his daughter's sudden departure. She spoke of it only after they were seated at table. But she had forbidden herself ever to ask Osmond a question. All she could do was to make a declaration, and there was one that came very naturally. I shall miss Pansy very much. He looked a while, with his head inclined a little, at the basket of flowers in the middle of the table. Ah, yes, he said at last. I had thought of that. You must go and see her, you know, but not too often. I dare say you wonder why I sent her to the good sisters, but I doubt if I can make you understand. It doesn't matter. Don't trouble yourself about it. That's why I had not spoken of it. I didn't believe you would enter into it. But I've always had the idea. I've always thought it a part of the education of one's daughter. One's daughter should be fresh and fair. She should be innocent and gentle. With the manners of the present time she is liable to become so dusty and crumpled. Pansy's a little dusty, a little dishevelled. She has knocked about too much. This bustling, pushing rabble that calls itself society. One should take her out of it occasionally. Convents are very quiet, very convenient, very salutary. I like to think of her there, in the old garden, under the arcade, among those tranquil, virtuous women. Many of them are gentlewomen born. Several of them are noble. 
she will have her books and her drawing she will have her piano i've made the most liberal arrangements there is to be nothing ascetic there's to be just a certain little sense of sequestration she'll have time to think and there's something i want her to think about osmond spoke deliberately reasonably still with his head on one side as if he were looking at the basket of flowers his tone however was that of a man not so much offering an explanation as putting a thing into words almost into pictures to see himself how it would look he considered a while the picture he had evoked and seemed greatly pleased with it and then he went on the catholics are very wise after all the convent is a great institution we can't do without it it corresponds to an essential need in families in society it's a school of good manners it's a school of repose oh i don't want to detach my daughter from the world he added i don't want to make her fix her thoughts on any other this one's very well as she should take it and she may think of it as much as she likes only she must think of it in the right way isabel gave an extreme attention to this little sketch she found it indeed intensely interesting it seemed to show her how far her husband's desire to be effective was capable of going to the point of playing theoretic tricks on the delicate organism of his daughter she could not understand his purpose no not wholly but she understood it better than he supposed or desired inasmuch as she was convinced that the whole proceeding was an elaborate mystification addressed to herself and designed to act upon her imagination he had wanted to do something sudden and arbitrary something unexpected and refined to mark the difference between his sympathies and her own and show that if he regarded his daughter as a precious work of art it was natural he should be more and more careful about the finishing touches if he wished to be effective he had succeeded the incident struck a chill into isabel's heart pansy had known the convent in her childhood and had found a happy home there she was fond of the good sisters who were very fond of her and there was therefore for the moment no definite hardship in her lot but all the same the girl had taken fright the impression her father desired to make would evidently be sharp enough the old protestant tradition had never faded from isabel's imagination and as her thoughts attached themselves to this striking example of her husband's genius she sat looking like him at the basket of flowers poor little pansy became the heroine of a tragedy osmond wished it to be known that he shrank from nothing and his wife found it hard to pretend to eat her dinner there was a certain relief presently in hearing the high strained voice of her sister-in-law the countess too apparently had been thinking the thing out but had arrived at a different conclusion from isabel it's very absurd my dear osmond she said to invent so many pretty reasons for poor pansy's banishment why don't you say at once that you want to get her out of my way haven't you discovered that i think very well of mr rosier i do indeed he seems to me simpaticissimo he has made me believe in true love i never did before of course you've made up your mind that with those convictions i'm dreadful company for pansy osmond took a sip of a glass of wine he looked perfectly good-humoured my dear amy he answered smiling as if he were uttering a piece of gallantry i don't know anything about your convictions but if i suspected that they interfered with mine it would be much simpler to banish you End of chapter 50
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Countess was not banished, but she felt the insecurity of her tenure of her brother's hospitality. A week after this incident, Isabel received a telegram from England, dated from Gardencourt, and bearing the stamp of Mrs. Touchett's authorship. Ralph cannot last many days, it ran, and if convenient would like to see you. Wishes me to say that you must come only if you've not other duties. Say, for myself, that you used to talk a good deal about your duty, and to wonder what it was. Shall be curious to see whether you've found it out. Ralph is really dying, and there's no other company. Isabel was prepared for this news, having received from Henrietta Stackpole a detailed account of her journey to England with her appreciative patient. Ralph had arrived more dead than alive, but she had managed to convey him to Gardencourt, where he had taken to his bed, which, as Miss Stackpole wrote, he evidently would never leave again. She added that she had really had two patients on her hands instead of one, inasmuch as Mr. Goodwood, who had been of no earthly use, was quite as ailing, in a different way, as Mr. Touchett. Afterwards she wrote that she had been obliged to surrender the field to Mrs. Touchett, who had just returned from America, and had promptly given her to understand that she didn't wish any interviewing at Garden Court. Isabel had written to her aunt shortly after Ralph came to Rome, letting her know of his critical condition, and suggesting that she should lose no time in returning to Europe. Mrs. Touchett had telegraphed an acknowledgment of this admonition, and the only further news Isabel received from her was the second telegram I have just quoted. Isabel stood a moment looking at the latter missive. Then, thrusting it into her pocket, she went straight to the door of her husband's study. Here she again paused an instant, after which she opened the door and went in. Osmond was seated at the table near the window with a folio volume before him, propped against a pile of books. This volume was open at a page of small coloured plates, and Isabel presently saw that he had been copying from it the drawing of an antique coin. A box of watercolours and fine brushes lay before him, and he had already transferred to a sheet of immaculate paper the delicate, finely tinted disc. His back was turned toward the door, but he recognised his wife without looking round. "'Excuse me for disturbing you,' she said. "'When I come to your room I always knock,' he answered, going on with his work. "'I forgot. I had something else to think of. My cousin's dying.' "'Ah, I don't believe that.' said Osmond, looking at his drawing through a magnifying glass. He was dying when we married. He'll outlive us all. Isabel gave herself no time, no thought, to appreciate the careful cynicism of this declaration. She simply went on quickly, full of her own intention. My aunt has telegraphed for me. I must go to Gardencourt. Why must you go to Gardencourt? Osmond asked, in the tone of impartial curiosity to see Ralph before he dies. To this for some time he made no rejoinder. He continued to give his chief attention to his work, which was of a sort that would brook no negligence. "'I don't see the need of it,' he said at last. "'He came to see you here. I didn't like that. I thought his being in Rome a great mistake. But I tolerated it because it was to be the last time you should see him. Now you tell me it's not to have been the last.' Ha! Huh, you're not grateful. What am I to be grateful for? Gilbert Osmond laid down his little implements, blew a speck of dust from his drawing, slowly got up, 
and for the first time looked at his wife for my not having interfered while he was here oh yes i am i remember perfectly how distinctly you let me know you didn't like it i was very glad when he went away leave him alone then don't run after him isabel turned her eyes away from him they rested upon his little drawing i must go to england she said with a full consciousness that her tone might strike an irritable man of taste as stupidly obstinate i shall not like it if you do osmond remarked why should i mind that you won't like it if i don't you like nothing i do or don't do you pretend to think i lie osmond turned slightly pale he gave a cold smile that's why you must go then not to see your cousin but to take a revenge on me i know nothing about revenge i do said osmond don't give me an occasion you're only too eager to take one you wish immensely that i would commit some folly i should be gratified in that case if you disobeyed me if i disobeyed you said isabel in a low tone which had the effect of mildness let it be clear if you leave rome to-day it'll be a piece of the most deliberate the most calculated opposition how can you call it calculated i received my aunt's telegram but three minutes ago you calculate rapidly it's a great accomplishment i don't see why we should prolong our discussion you know my wish and he stood there as if he expected to see her withdraw but she never moved she couldn't move strange as it may seem she still wished to justify herself he had the power in an extraordinary degree of making her feel this need there was something in her imagination he could always appeal to against her judgment you've no reason for such a wish said isabel and i've every reason for going i can't tell you how unjust you seem to me but i think you know it's your own opposition that's calculated it's malignant she had never uttered her worst thought to her husband before and the sensation of hearing it was evidently new to osmond but he showed no surprise and his coolness was apparently a proof that he had believed his wife would in fact be unable to resist for ever his ingenious endeavour to draw her out it's all the more intense then he answered and he added almost as if he were giving her a friendly counsel this is a very important matter she recognised that she was fully conscious of the weight of the occasion she knew that between them they had arrived at a crisis its gravity made her careful she said nothing and he went on you say i've no reason i have the very best i dislike from the bottom of my soul what you intend to do it's dishonourable it's indelicate it's indecent your cousin is nothing whatever to me and i'm under no obligation to make concessions to him i've already made the very handsomest your relations with him while he was here kept me on pins and needles but i let that pass because from week to week i expected him to go i've never liked him and he has never liked me that's why you like him because he hates me said osmond with a quick barely audible tremor in his voice i've an ideal of what my wife should do and should not do she should not travel across europe alone in defiance of my deepest desire to sit at the bedside of other men your cousin's nothing to you he's nothing to us you smile most expressively when i talk about us but i assure you that we 
we mrs osmond is all i know i take our marriage seriously you appear to have found a way of not doing so i'm not aware that we're divorced or separated for me we're indissolubly united you are nearer to me than any human creature and i'm nearer to you it may be a disagreeable proximity it's one at any rate of our own deliberate making you don't like to be reminded of that i know but i'm perfectly willing because because and he paused a moment looking as if he had something to say which would be very much to the point because i think we should accept the consequences of our actions and what i value most in life is the honour of a thing he spoke gravely and almost gently the accent of sarcasm had dropped out of his tone it had a gravity which checked his wife's quick emotion the resolution with which she had entered the room found itself caught in a mesh of fine threads his last words were not a command they constituted a kind of appeal and though she felt that any expression of respect on his part could only be a refinement of egotism they represented something transcendent and absolute like the sign of the cross or the flag of one's country he spoke in the name of something sacred and precious the observance of a magnificent form they were as perfectly apart in feeling as two disillusioned lovers had ever been but they had never yet separated in act isabel had not changed her old passion for justice still abode within her and now in the very thick of her sense of her husband's blasphemous sophistry it began to throb to a tune which for a moment promised him the victory it came over her that in his wish to preserve appearances he was after all sincere and that this as far as it went was a merit ten minutes before she had felt all the joy of irreflective action a joy to which she had so long been a stranger but action had been suddenly changed to slow renunciation transformed by the blight of osmond's touch if she must renounce however she would let him know that she was a victim rather than a dupe i know you are a master of the art of mockery she said how can you speak of an indissoluble union how can you speak of your being contented where's our union when you accuse me of falsity where's your contentment when you have nothing but hideous suspicion in your heart it is in our living decently together in spite of such drawbacks we don't live decently together cried isabel indeed we don't if you go to england that's very little that's nothing i might do much more he raised his eyebrows and even his shoulders a little he had lived long enough in italy to catch this trick huh, if you've come to threaten me i prefer my drawing and he walked back to his table where he took up the sheet of paper on which he had been working and stood studying it i suppose that if i go you'll not expect me to come back said isabel he turned quickly round and she could see this movement at least was not designed he looked at her a little and then are you out of your mind he inquired how can it be anything but a rupture she went on especially if all you say is true she was unable to see how it could be anything but a rupture she sincerely wished to know what else it might be he sat down before his table i really can't argue with you on the hypothesis of your defying me he said and he took up one of his little brushes again she lingered but a moment longer long enough to embrace with her eye his whole deliberately indifferent yet most expressive figure after which she quickly left the room 
her faculties her energy her passion were all dispersed again she felt as if a cold dark mist had suddenly encompassed her osmond possessed in a supreme degree the art of eliciting any weakness on her way back to her room she found the countess gemini standing in the open doorway of a little parlour in which a small collection of heterogeneous books had been arranged the countess had an open volume in her hand she appeared to have been glancing down a page which failed to strike her as interesting at the sound of isabel's step she raised her head ah my dear she said you who are so literary do tell me some amusing book to read everything here is of a dreariness do you think this would do me any good isabel glanced at the title of the volume she held out but without reading or understanding it i'm afraid i can't advise you i've had bad news my cousin ralph touchett is dying the countess threw down her book oh he was so simpatico i'm awfully sorry for you you would be sorrier still if you knew what is there to know you look very badly the countess added you must have been with osmond half an hour before isabel would have listened very coldly to an intimation that she should ever feel a desire for the sympathy of her sister-in-law and there could be no better proof of her present embarrassment than the fact that she almost clutched at this lady's fluttering attention i've been with osmond she said while the countess's bright eyes glittered at her i'm sure then he has been odious the countess cried did he say he was glad poor mr touchett's dying he said it's impossible i should go to england the countess's mind when her interests were concerned was agile she already foresaw the extinction of any further brightness in her visit to rome ralph touchett would die isabel would go into mourning and then there would be no more dinner-parties such a prospect produced for a moment in her countenance an expressive grimace but this rapid picturesque play of feature was her only tribute to disappointment after all she reflected the game was almost played out she had already overstayed her invitation and then she cared enough for isabel's trouble to forget her own and she saw that isabel's trouble was deep it seemed deeper than the mere death of a cousin and the countess had no hesitation in connecting her exasperating brother with the expression of her sister-in-law's eyes her heart beat with an almost joyous expectation for if she had wished to see osmond overtopped the conditions looked favourable now of course if isabel should go to england she herself would immediately leave palazzo rocanera nothing would induce her to remain there with osmond nevertheless she felt an immense desire to hear that isabel would go to england nothing's impossible for you my dear she said caressingly why else are you rich and clever and good why indeed i feel stupidly weak why does osmond say it's impossible the countess asked in a tone which sufficiently declared that she couldn't imagine from the moment she thus began to question her however isabel drew back she disengaged her hand which the countess had affectionately taken but she answered this inquiry with frank bitterness because we're so happy together that we can't separate even for a fortnight ah cried the countess while isabel turned away when i want to make a journey my husband simply tells me i can have no money isabel went to her room where she walked up and down for an hour it may appear to some readers that she gave herself much trouble and it is certain that for a woman of high spirit she had allowed herself easily to be arrested it seemed to her that only now she fully measured the great undertaking of matrimony marriage meant that in such a case as this when one had to choose 
one chose as a matter of course for one's husband i'm afraid yes i'm afraid she said to herself more than once stopping short in her walk but what she was afraid of was not her husband his displeasure his hatred his revenge it was not even her own later judgment of her conduct a consideration which had often held her in check it was simply the violence there would be in going when osmond wished her to remain a gulf of difference had opened between them but nevertheless it was his desire that she should stay it was a horror to him that she should go she knew the nervous fineness with which he could feel an objection what he thought of her she knew what he was capable of saying to her she had felt yet they were married for all that and marriage meant that a woman should cleave to the man with whom uttering tremendous vows she had stood at the altar she sank down on her sofa at last and buried her head in a pile of cushions when she raised her head again the countess gemini hovered before her she had come in all unperceived she had a strange smile on her thin lips and her whole face had grown in an hour a shining intimation she lived assuredly it might be said at the window of her spirit but now she was leaning far out i knocked she began but you didn't answer me so i ventured in i've been looking at you for the past five minutes you're very unhappy yes but i don't think you can comfort me will you give me leave to try and the countess sat down on the sofa beside her she continued to smile and there was something communicative and exultant in her expression she appeared to have a deal to say and it occurred to isabel for the first time that her sister-in-law might say something really human she made play with her glittering eyes in which there was an unpleasant fascination after all she soon resumed i must tell you to begin with that i don't understand your state of mind you seem to have so many scruples so many reasons so many ties when i discovered ten years ago that my husband's dearest wish was to make me miserable of late he has simply let me alone ah it was a wonderful simplification my poor isabel you're not simple enough no i'm not simple enough said isabel there's something i want you to know the countess declared because i think you ought to know it perhaps you do perhaps you've guessed it but if you have all i can say is that i understand still less why you shouldn't do as you like what do you wish me to know isabel felt a foreboding that made her heart beat faster the countess was about to justify herself and this alone was portentous but she was nevertheless disposed to play a little with her subject in your place i should have guessed it ages ago have you never really suspected i've guessed nothing what should i have suspected i don't know what you mean that's because you've such a beastly pure mind i never saw a woman with such a pure mind cried the countess isabel slowly got up you're going to tell me something horrible you can call it by whatever name you will and the countess rose also while her gathered perversity grew vivid and dreadful she stood a moment in a sort of glare of intention and as it seemed to isabel even then of ugliness after which she said my first sister-in-law had no children isabel stared back at her the announcement was an anticlimax. your first sister-in-law i suppose you know at least if one may mention it that osmond has been married before i've never spoken to you of his wife i thought it mightn't be decent or respectful but others less particular must have done so 
the poor little woman lived hardly three years and died childless it wasn't till after her death that pansy arrived isabel's brow had contracted to a frown her lips were parted in pale vague wonder she was trying to follow there seemed so much more to follow than she could see pansy's not my husband's child then your husband's in perfection but no one else's husband's someone else's wife's oh my good isabel cried the countess with you one must dot one's eyes i don't understand whose wife's isabel asked the wife of a horrid little swiss who died how long a dozen more than fifteen years ago he never recognized miss pansy nor knowing what he was about would have anything to say to her and there was no reason why he should osmond did and that was better though he had to fit on afterwards the whole rigmarole of his own wife's having died in childbirth and of his having in grief and horror banished the little girl from his sight for as long as possible before taking her home from nurse his wife had really died you know of quite another matter and in quite another place in the piedmontese mountains where they had gone one august because her health appeared to require the air but where she was suddenly taken worse fatally ill the story passed sufficiently it was covered by the appearances so long as nobody heeded as nobody cared to look into it but of course i knew without researches the countess lucidly proceeded as also you'll understand without a word said between us i mean between osmond and me don't you see him looking at me in silence that way to settle it that is to settle me if i should say anything i said nothing right or left never a word to a creature if you can believe that of me on my honour my dear i speak of the thing to you now after all this time as i've never never spoken it was to be enough for me from the first that the child was my niece from the moment she was my brother's daughter as for her veritable mother but with this pansy's wonderful aunt dropped as involuntarily from the impression of her sister-in-law's face out of which more eyes might have seemed to look at her than she had ever had to meet she had spoken no name yet isabel could but check on her own lips an echo of the unspoken she sank to her seat again hanging her head why have you told me this she asked in a voice the countess hardly recognized because i've been so bored with your not knowing i've been bored frankly my dear with not having told you as if stupidly all this time i couldn't have managed some de passe if you don't mind my saying so the things all round you that you've appeared to succeed in not knowing it's a sort of assistance aid to innocent ignorance that i've always been a bad hand at rendering and in this connection that of keeping quiet for my brother my virtue had at any rate finally found itself exhausted it's not a black lie moreover you know the countess inimitably added the facts are exactly what i tell you i had no idea said isabel presently and looked up at her in a manner that doubtless matched the apparent witlessness of this confession so i believed though it was hard to believe had it never occurred to you that he was six or seven years her lover i don't know things have occurred to me and perhaps that was what they all meant she has been wonderfully clever she has been magnificent about pansy the countess before all this view of it cried oh no idea for me isabel went on ever definitely took that form she appeared to be making out to herself what had been and what hadn't and as it is 
i don't understand she spoke as one troubled and puzzled yet the poor countess seemed to have seen her revelation fall below its possibilities of effect she had expected to kindle some responsive blaze but had barely extracted a spark isabel showed as scarce more impressed than she might have been as a young woman of approved imagination with some fine sinister passage of public history don't you recognize how the child could never pass for her husband's that is with monsieur merle himself her companion resumed they had been separated too long for that and he had gone to some far country i think to south america if she had ever had children which i'm not sure of she had lost them the conditions happened to make it workable under stress i mean at so awkward a pinch that osmond should acknowledge the little girl his wife was dead very true but she had not been dead too long to put a certain accommodation of dates out of the question from the moment i mean that suspicion wasn't started which was what they had to take care of what was more natural than that poor mrs osmond at a distance and for a world not troubling about trifles should have left behind her poverina the pledge of her brief happiness that had cost her her life with the aid of a change of residence osmond had been living with her at naples at the time of their stay in the alps and he in due course left it for ever the whole history was successfully set going my poor sister-in-law in her grave couldn't help herself and the real mother to save her skin renounced all visible property in the child oh poor poor woman cried isabel who herewith burst into tears it was a long time since she had shed any she had suffered a high reaction from weeping but now they flowed with an abundance in which the countess gemini found only another discomfiture it's very kind of you to pity her she discordantly laughed yes indeed you have a way of your own he must have been false to his wife and so very soon said isabel with a sudden check that's all that's wanting that you should take up her cause the countess went on i quite agree with you however that it was much too soon but to me to me and isabel hesitated as if she had not heard as if her question though it was sufficiently there in her eyes were all for herself to you he has been faithful well it depends my dear on what you call faithful when he married you he was no longer the lover of another woman such a lover as he had been cara mia between their risks and their precautions while the thing lasted that state of affairs had passed away the lady had repented or at all events for reasons of her own drawn back she had always had to a worship of appearances so intense that even osmond himself had got bored with it you may therefore imagine what it was when he couldn't patch it on conveniently to any of those he goes in for but the whole past was between them yes isabel mechanically echoed the whole past is between them ah oh, this later past is nothing but for six or seven years as i say they had kept it up she was silent a little why then did she want him to marry me ah oh, my dear that's her superiority because you had money and because she believed you would be good to pansy poor woman and pansy who doesn't like her cried isabel that's the reason she wanted someone whom pansy would like she knows it she knows everything will she know that you've told me this that will depend upon whether you tell her she's prepared for it and do you know what she counts upon for her defence on your believing that i lie perhaps you do don't make yourself uncomfortable to hide it 
only as it happens this time i don't i've told plenty of little idiotic fibs but they never hurt anyone but myself isabel sat staring at her companion's story as at a bale of fantastic wares some strolling gypsy might have unpacked on the carpet at her feet why did osmond never marry her she finally asked because she has no money the countess had an answer for everything and if she lied she lied well no one knows no one has ever known what she lives on or how she has got all these beautiful things i don't believe osmond himself knows besides she wouldn't have married him how can she have loved him then she doesn't love him in that way she did at first and then i suppose she would have married him but at that time her husband was living by the time monsieur merle had rejoined i won't say his ancestors because he never had any her relations with osmond had changed and she had grown more ambitious besides she has never had about him the countess went on leaving isabel to wince for it so tragically afterwards she had never had what you might call any illusions of intelligence she hoped she might marry a great man that has always been her idea she has waited and watched and plotted and prayed but she has never succeeded i don't call madame merle a success you know i don't know what she may accomplish yet but at present she has very little to show the only tangible result she has ever achieved except of course getting to know every one and staying with them free of expense has been her bringing you and osmond together oh she did that my dear you needn't look as if you doubted it i've watched them for years i know everything everything i'm thought a great scatterbrain but i've had enough application of mind to follow up those two she hates me and her way of showing it is to pretend to be for ever defending me when people say i've had fifteen lovers she looks horrified and declares that quite half of them were never proved she has been afraid of me for years and she has taken great comfort in the vile false things people have said about me she has been afraid i'd expose her and she threatened me one day when osmond began to pay his court to you it was at his house in florence do you remember the afternoon she brought you there and we had tea in the garden she let me know then that if i should tell tales two could play at that game she pretends there's a good deal more to tell about me than about her it would be an interesting comparison i don't care a fig what she may say simply because i know you don't care a fig you can't trouble your head about me less than you do already so she may take her revenge as she chooses i don't think she'll frighten you very much her great idea has been to be tremendously irreproachable a kind of full-blown lily the incarnation of propriety she has always worshipped that god there should be no scandal about caesar's wife you know and as i say she has always hoped to marry caesar that was one reason she wouldn't marry osmond the fear that on seeing her with pansy people would put things together would even see a resemblance she has had a terror lest the mother should betray herself she has been awfully careful the mother has never done so yes yes the mother has done so said isabel who had listened to all this with a face more and more wan she betrayed herself to me the other day though i didn't recognize her there appeared to have been a chance of pansy's making a great marriage and in her disappointment at its not coming off she almost dropped the mask ah that's where she'd dish herself cried the countess she has failed so dreadfully that she's determined her daughter shall make it up isabel started at the words her daughter which her guest threw off so familiarly 
It seems very wonderful, she murmured, and in this bewildering impression she had almost lost her sense of being personally touched by the story. Now don't go and turn against the poor innocent child, the countess went on. She's very nice, in spite of her deplorable origin. I myself have liked Pansy, not naturally because she was hers, but because she had become yours. Yes, she has become mine. And how the poor woman must have suffered at seeing me! Isabel exclaimed while she flushed at the thought. I don't believe she has suffered. On the contrary, she is enjoyed. Osmond's marriage has given his daughter a great little lift. Before that she lived in a hole. And do you know what the mother thought? That you might take such a fancy to the child that you do something for her. Osmond, of course, could never give her a portion. Osmond was really extremely poor. But, of course, you know all about that. Ah, oh, my dear, cried the Countess, why did you ever inherit money? She stopped a moment as if she saw something singular in Isabel's face. Don't tell me now that you'll give her a dough. You're capable of that, but I would refuse to believe it. Don't try to be too good. Be a little easy and natural and nasty. Feel a little wicked for the comfort of it once in your life. It's very strange. I suppose I ought to know, but I'm sorry, Isabel said. I'm much obliged to you. Yes, you seem to be, cried the Countess with a mocking laugh. <laughs> perhaps you are, perhaps you're not. You don't take it as I should have thought. How should I take it? Isabel asked. Well, I should say as a woman who has been made use of. Isabel made no answer to this. She only listened, and the Countess went on. They've always been bound to each other. They remained so even after she broke off, or he did. But he has always been more for her than she has been for him. When their little carnival was over, they made a bargain that each should give the other complete liberty, but that each should also do everything possible to help the other on. You may ask me how I know such a thing as that. I know it by the way they've behaved. Now see how much better women are than men. She has found a wife for Osmond, but Osmond has never lifted a little finger for her. She has worked for him, plotted for him, suffered for him. She has even more than once found money for him. And the end of it is that he's tired of her. She's an old habit. There are moments when he needs her, but on the whole he wouldn't miss her if she were removed. And what's more, today she knows it. And so you needn't be jealous. The Countess added humorously. Isabel rose from her sofa again. She felt bruised and scant of breath. Her head was humming with new knowledge. I'm much obliged to you, she repeated. And then she added abruptly, in quite a different tone, How do you know all this? This inquiry appeared to ruffle the Countess more than Isabel's expression of gratitude pleased her. She gave her companion a bold stare, with which, Let us assume that I've invented it, she cried. She too, however, suddenly changed her tone, and laying her hand on Isabel's arm, said with the penetration of her sharp, bright smile, "'Now will you give up your journey?' Isabel started a little. She turned away. But she felt weak, and in a moment had to lay her arm upon the mantel-shelf for support. She stood a minute so, and then upon her arm she dropped her dizzy head, with closed eyes and pale lips. "'I've done wrong to speak. I've made you ill,' the Countess cried. "'Ah!' Oh. I must see Ralph, Isabel wailed. 
not in resentment, not in the quick passion her companion had looked for, but in a tone of far-reaching, infinite sadness. End of chapter 51 Chapter 52 of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There was a train for Turin and Paris that evening, and after the Countess had left her, Isabel had a rapid and decisive conference with her maid, who was discreet, devoted, and active. After this, she thought, except of her journey, of only one thing she must go and see Pansy. From her she couldn't turn away. She had not seen her yet, as Osmond had given her to understand that it was too soon to begin. She drove at five o'clock to a high floor in a narrow street in the quarter of the Piazza Navona, and was admitted by the portress of the convent, a genial and obsequious person. Isabel had been at this institution before. She had come with Pansy to see the sisters. She knew they were good women, and she saw that the large rooms were clean and cheerful and that the well-used garden had sun for winter and shade for spring. But she disliked the place, which affronted and almost frightened her. Not for the world would she have spent a night there. It produced to-day more than before the impression of a well-appointed prison, for it was not possible to pretend Pansy was free to leave it. This innocent creature had been presented to her in a new and violent light, but the secondary effect of the revelation was to make her reach out a hand. The portress left her to wait in the parlour of the convent while she went to make it known that there was a visitor for the dear young lady. The parlour was a vast, cold apartment, with new-looking furniture, a large, clean stove of white porcelain, unlighted, a collection of wax flowers under glass, and a series of engravings from religious pictures on the walls. On the other occasion Isabel had thought it less like Rome than like Philadelphia, but to-day she made no reflections. The apartment only seemed to her very empty and very soundless. The portress returned at the end of some five minutes, ushering in another person. Isabel got up, expecting to see one of the ladies of the sisterhood, but to her extreme surprise found herself confronted with Madame Merle. The effect was strange, for Madame Merle was already so present to her vision that her appearance in the flesh was like suddenly, and rather awfully, seeing a painted picture move. Isabel had been thinking all day of her falsity, her audacity, her ability, her probable suffering, and these dark things seemed to flash with a sudden light as she entered the room. Her being there at all had the character of ugly evidence, of handwritings, of profaned relics, of grim things produced in court. It made Isabel feel faint. If it had been necessary to speak on the spot, she would have been quite unable. But no such necessity was distinct to her. It seemed to her indeed that she had absolutely nothing to say to Madame Merle. In one's relations with this lady, however, there were never any absolute necessities. She had a manner which carried off not only her own deficiencies, but those of other people. But she was different from usual. She came in slowly behind the portress, and Isabel instantly perceived that she was not likely to depend upon her habitual resources. For her, too, the occasion was exceptional, and she had undertaken to treat it by the light of the moment. This gave her a peculiar gravity. She pretended not even to smile, 
and though isabel saw that she was more than ever playing a part it seemed to her that on the whole the wonderful woman had never been so natural she looked at her young friend from head to foot but not harshly nor defiantly with a cold gentleness rather and an absence of any air of allusion to their last meeting it was as if she had wished to mark a distinction she had been irritated then she was reconciled now you can leave us alone she said to the portress in five minutes this lady will ring for you and then she turned to isabel who after noting what has just been mentioned had ceased to notice and had let her eyes wander as far as the limits of the room would allow she wished never to look at madame merle again you're surprised to find me here and i'm afraid you're not pleased this lady went on you don't see why i should have come it's as if i had anticipated you i confess i've been rather indiscreet i ought to have asked your permission there was none of the oblique movement of irony in this it was said simply and mildly but isabel far afloat on a sea of wonder and pain could not have told herself with what intention it was uttered but i've not been sitting long madame merle continued that is i've not been long with pansy i came to see her because it occurred to me this afternoon that she must be rather lonely and perhaps even a little miserable it may be good for a small girl i know so little about small girls i can't tell at any rate it's a little dismal therefore i came on the chance i knew of course that you'd come and her father as well still i had not been told other visitors were forbidden the good woman what's her name madame catherine made no objection whatever i stayed twenty minutes with pansy she has a charming little room not the least conventual with a piano and flowers she's arranged it delightfully she has so much taste of course it's all none of my business but i feel happier since i've seen her she may even have a maid if she likes but of course she has no occasion to dress she wears a little black frock she looks so charming i went afterwards to see mother catherine who has a very good room too i assure you i don't find the poor sisters at all monastic mother catherine has a most coquettish little toilet table with something that looked uncommonly like a bottle of eau de cologne she speaks delightfully of pansy says it's a great happiness for them to have her she's a little saint of heaven and a model to the oldest of them just as i was leaving madame catherine the portress came to say to her that there was a lady for the signorina of course i knew it must be you and i asked her to let me go and receive you in her place she demurred greatly i must tell you that and said it was her duty to notify the mother superior it was of such high importance that you should be treated with respect i requested to her to let the mother superior alone and asked her how she supposed i would treat you so madame merle went on with much of the brilliancy of a woman who had long been mistress of the art of conversation but there were phrases and gradations in her speech not one of which was lost upon isabel's ear though her eyes were absent from her companion's face she had not proceeded far before isabel noted a certain break in her voice a lapse in her continuity which was in itself a complete drama this subtle modulation marked a momentous discovery the perception of an entirely new attitude on the part of her listener madame merle had guessed in the space of an instant that everything was at an end between them and in the space of another instant she had guessed the reason why the person who stood there was not the same one she had seen hitherto but was a very different person 
a person who knew her secret this discovery was tremendous and from the moment she made it the most accomplished of women faltered and lost her courage but only for a moment then the conscious stream of her perfect manner gathered itself again and flowed on as smoothly as might be to the end but it was only because she had the end in view that she was able to proceed she had been touched with a point that made her quiver and she needed all the alertness of her will to repress her agitation her only safety was in her not betraying herself she resisted this but the startled quality of her voice refused to improve she couldn't help it while she heard herself say she hardly knew what the tide of her confidence ebbed and she was able only just to glide into port faintly grazing the bottom isabel saw it all as distinctly as if it had been reflected in a large clear glass it might have been a great moment for her for it might have been a moment of triumph that madame merle had lost her pluck and saw before her the phantom of exposure this in itself was a revenge this in itself was almost the promise of a brighter day and for a moment during which she stood apparently looking out of the window with her back half turned isabel enjoyed that knowledge on the other side of the window lay the garden of the convent but this is not what she saw she saw nothing of the budding plants and the glowing afternoon she saw in the crude light of that revelation which had already become a part of experience and to which the very frailty of the vessel in which it had been offered her only gave an intrinsic price the dry staring fact that she had been an applied handled hung-up tool as senseless and convenient as mere shaped wood and iron all the bitterness of this knowledge surged into her soul again it was as if she felt on her lips the taste of dishonour there was a moment during which if she had turned and spoken she would have said something that would hiss like a lash but she closed her eyes and then the hideous vision dropped what remained was the cleverest woman in the world standing there within a few feet of her and knowing as little what to think as the meanest isabel's only revenge was to be silent still to leave madame merle in this unprecedented situation she left her there for a period that must have seemed long to this lady who at last seated herself with a movement which was in itself a confession of helplessness then isabel turned slow eyes looking down at her madame merle was very pale her own eyes covered isabel's face she might see what she would but her danger was over isabel would never accuse her never reproach her perhaps because she never would give her the opportunity to defend herself i'm come to bid pansy good-bye our young woman said at last i go to england to-night go to england to-night madame merle repeated sitting there and looking up at her i'm going to gardencourt ralph touchett's dying ah you'll feel that madame merle recovered herself she had a chance to express sympathy do you go alone yes without my husband madame merle gave a low vague murmur a sort of recognition of the general sadness of things mr touchett never liked me but i'm sorry he's dying shall you see his mother yes she has returned from america she used to be very kind to me but she has changed others too have changed said madame merle with a quiet noble pathos she paused a moment then added 
and you'll see dear old Gardencourt again. I shall not enjoy it much, Isabel answered. Naturally, in your grief. But it's on the whole of all the houses I know, and I know many, the one I should have liked best to live in. I don't venture to send a message to the people, Madame Merle said, but I should like to give my love to the place. Isabel turned away. I had better go to Pansy. I've not much time. While she looked about her for the proper egress, the door opened and admitted one of the ladies of the house, who advanced with a discreet smile, gently rubbing, under her long loose sleeves, a pair of plump white hands. Isabel recognized Madame Catherine, whose acquaintance she had already made, and begged that she would immediately let her see Miss Osmond. Madame Catherine looked doubly discreet, but smiled very blandly and said, "'It will be good for her to see you. I'll take you to her myself.' Then she directed her pleased, guarded vision to Madame Merle. "'Will you let me remain a little?' this lady asked. "'It's so good to be here.' "'You may remain always, if you like.' And the good sister gave a knowing laugh. She led Isabel out of the room, through several corridors, and up a long staircase. All these departments were solid and bare, light and clean. So, thought Isabel, are the great penal establishments. Madame Catherine gently pushed open the door of Pansy's room, and ushered in the visitor, then stood smiling with folded hands, while the two others met and embraced. "'She's glad to see you,' she repeated. "'It will do her good.' And she placed the best chair carefully for Isabel. But she made no movement to seat herself. She seemed ready to retire. "'How does this dear child look?' she asked of Isabel, lingering a moment. "'She looks pale,' Isabel answered. "'That's the pleasure of seeing you. She's very happy. Elle est claire la maison,' said the good sister. Pansy wore, as Madame Merle had said, a little black dress. It was perhaps this that made her look pale. "'They're very good to me. They think of everything,' she exclaimed with all her customary eagerness to accommodate. "'We think of you always. You're a precious charge,' Madame Catherine remarked in the tone of a woman with whom benevolence was a habit and whose conception of duty was the acceptance of every care. It fell with a leaden weight on Isabel's ears. It seemed to represent the surrender of a personality, the authority of the church. When Madame Catherine had left them together, Pansy kneeled down and hid her head in her stepmother's lap. So she remained some moments, while Isabel gently stroked her hair. Then she got up, averting her face and looking about the room. "'Don't you think I've arranged it well? I've everything I have at home.' "'It's very pretty. You are very comfortable.' Isabel scarcely knew what she could say to her. On the one hand she couldn't let her think she had come to pity her, and on the other it would be a dull mockery to pretend to rejoice with her. So she simply added after a moment, "'I've come to bid you good-bye. I'm going to England.' Pansy's white little face turned red. "'To England? Not to come back?' "'I don't know when I shall come back.' "'Oh, I'm sorry,' Pansy breathed with faintness. She spoke as if she had no right to criticise but her tone expressed a depth of disappointment. "'My cousin, Mr. Touchett, is very ill. He'll probably die. I wish to see him,' Isabel said. "'Ah, oh, yes, you told me he would die. 
of course you must go and will papa go no i shall go alone for a moment the girl said nothing isabel had often wondered what she thought of the apparent relations of her father with his wife but never by a glance by an intimation had she let it be seen that she deemed them deficient in an air of intimacy she made her reflections isabel was sure and she must have had a conviction that there were husbands and wives who were more intimate than that but pansy was not indiscreet even in thought she would as little have ventured to judge her gentle stepmother as to criticise her magnificent father her heart may have stood almost as still as it would have done had she seen two of the saints in the great picture in the convent chapel turn their painted heads and shake them at each other but as in this latter case she would for very solemnity's sake never have mentioned the awful phenomenon so she put away all knowledge of the secrets of larger lives than her own you'll be very far away she presently went on yes i shall be far away but it will scarcely matter isabel explained since so long as you are here i can't be called near you yes but you can come and see me though you've not come very often i've not come because your father forbade it to-day i bring nothing with me i can't amuse you i'm not to be amused that's not what papa wishes then it hardly matters whether i'm in rome or in england you're not happy mrs osmond said pansy not very but it doesn't matter that's what i say to myself what does it matter but i should like to come out i wish indeed you might don't leave me here pansy went on gently isabel said nothing for a minute her heart beat fast will you come away with me now she asked pansy looked at her pleadingly did papa tell you to bring me no it's my own proposal i think i had better wait then did papa send me no message i don't think he knew i was coming he thinks i've not had enough said pansy but i have the ladies are very kind to me and the little girls come to see me there are some very little ones such charming children then my room you can see for yourself all that's very delightful but i've had enough papa wished me to think a little and i've thought a great deal what have you thought well that i must never displease papa you knew that before yes but i know it better i'll do anything i'll do anything said pansy then as she heard her own words a deep pure blush came into her face isabel read the meaning of it she saw the poor girl had been vanquished it was well that mr edward rosier had kept his enamels isabel looked into her eyes and saw there mainly a prayer to be treated easily she laid her hand on pansy's as if to let her know that her look conveyed no diminution of esteem for the collapse of the girl's momentary resistance mute and modest though it had been seemed only her tribute to the truth of things she didn't presume to judge others but she had judged herself she had seen the reality she had no vocation for struggling with combinations in the solemnity of sequestration there was something that overwhelmed her she bowed her pretty head to authority and only asked of authority to be merciful yes 
it was very well that Edward Rosier had reserved a few articles. Isabel got up. Her time was rapidly shortening. Goodbye, then. I leave Rome tonight. Pansy took hold of her dress. There was a sudden change in the child's face. You look strange. You frighten me. Oh, I'm very harmless, said Isabel. Perhaps you won't come back? Perhaps not. I can't tell. Oh, Mrs. Osmond, you won't leave me. Isabel now saw that she had guessed everything. My dear child, what can I do for you? she added. I don't know, but I'm happier when I think of you. You can always think of me. Not when you're so far. I'm a little afraid, said Pansy. What are you afraid of? Of papa, a little. And of Madame Merle. She's just been to see me. You must not say that, Isabel observed. Oh, I'll do everything they want. Only if you're here I shall do it more easily. Isabel considered. I won't desert you, she said at last. Goodbye, my child. Then they held each other a moment in a silent embrace, like two sisters, and afterwards Pansy walked along the corridor with her visitor to the top of the staircase. Madame Merle has been here, she remarked as they went, and as Isabel answered nothing she added abruptly, I don't like Madame Merle. Isabel hesitated, then stopped. You must never say that, that you don't like Madame Merle. Pansy looked at her in wonder, but wonder with Pansy had never been a reason for non-compliance. I never will again, she said with exquisite gentleness. At the top of the staircase they had to separate, as it appeared to be part of the mild but very definite discipline under which Pansy lived, that she should not go down. Isabel descended, and when she reached the bottom the girl was standing above. "'You'll come back?' she called out in a voice that Isabel remembered afterwards. "'Yes, I'll come back.' Madame Catherine met Mrs. Osmond below, and conducted her to the door of the parlour, outside of which the two stood talking a minute. "'I won't go in,' said the good sister. "'Madame Merle's waiting for you.' At this announcement Isabel stiffened. She was on the point of asking if there were no other egress from the convent, but a moment's reflection assured her that she would do well not to betray to the worthy nun her desire to avoid Pansy's other friend. Her companion grasped her arm very gently, and fixing her a moment with wise, benevolent eyes, said in French and almost familiarly, "'Eh bien, chère madame, qu'en pensez-vous?' "'About my stepdaughter. Oh, it would take long to tell you.' "'We think it's enough.' madame catherine distinctly observed and she pushed open the door of the parlour madame merle was sitting just as isabel had left her like a woman so absorbed in thought that she had not moved a little finger as madame catherine closed the door she got up and isabel saw that she had been thinking to some purpose she had recovered her balance she was in full possession of her resources i found i wished to wait for you she said urbanely but it's not to talk about Pansy. Isabel wondered what it could be to talk about, and in spite of Madame Merle's declaration, she answered after a moment, Madame Catherine says it's enough. Yes, it also seems to me enough. I wanted to ask you another word about poor Mr. Touchett. Madame Merle added, Have you reason to believe that he's really at his last? 
I have no information but a telegram. Unfortunately, it only confirms a probability. I am going to ask you a strange question, said Madame Merle. Are you very fond of your cousin? And she gave a smile as strange as her utterance. Yes, I'm very fond of him. But I don't understand you. She just hung fire. It's rather hard to explain. Something has occurred to me which may not have occurred to you, and I give you the benefit of my idea. Your cousin did you once a great service. Have you never guessed it? He has done me many services. Yes, but one was much above the rest. He made you a rich woman. He made me? Madame Merle appearing to see herself successful, she went on more triumphantly. He imparted to you that extra lustre which was required to make you a brilliant match. At bottom it's him you've to thank. She stopped. There was something in Isabel's eyes. I don't understand you. It was my uncle's money. Yes, it was your uncle's money, but it was your cousin's idea. He brought his father over to it. Ah, my dear, the sum was large. Isabel stood staring. She seemed to-day to live in a world illumined by lurid flashes. I don't know why you say such things. I don't know what you know. I know nothing but what I've guessed. But I've guessed that. Isabel went to the door, and when she had opened it, stood a moment with her hand on the latch. Then she said, it was her only revenge. I believed it was you I had to thank. Madame Merle dropped her eyes. She stood there in a kind of proud penance. You're very unhappy, I know. But I'm more so. Yes, I can believe that. I think I should like never to see you again. Madame Merle raised her eyes. I shall go to America, she quietly remarked, while Isabel passed out. End of chapter 52。as it were, or at any rate into the hands, of Henrietta Stackpole. She had telegraphed to her friend from Turin, and though she had not definitely said to herself that Henrietta would meet her, she had felt her telegram would produce some helpful result. On her long journey from Rome, her mind had been given up to vagueness. She was unable to question the future. She performed this journey with sightless eyes, and took little pleasure in the countries she traversed decked out though they were in the richest freshness of spring her thoughts followed their course through other countries strange-looking dimly lighted pathless lands in which there was no change of seasons but only as it seemed a perpetual dreariness of winter she had plenty to think about but it was neither reflection nor conscious purpose that filled her mind discontented visions passed through it and sudden dull gleams of memory of expectation the past and the future came and went at their will but she saw them only in fitful images 
which rose and fell by a logic of their own. It was extraordinary the things she remembered. Now that she was in the secret, now that she knew something that so much concerned her, and the eclipse of which had made life resemble an attempt to play whilst with an imperfect pack of cards, the truth of things, their mutual relations, their meaning, and for the most part their horror, rose before her with a kind of architectural vastness. She remembered a thousand trifles. They started to life with the spontaneity of a shiver. She had thought them trifles at the time. Now she saw that they had been weighted with lead. Yet even now they were trifles after all, for of what use was it to her to understand them? Nothing seemed of use to her today. All purpose, all intention was suspended. All desire, too, save the single desire to reach her much-embracing refuge. Garden Court had been her starting point, and to those muffled chambers it was at least a temporary solution to return. She had gone forth in her strength, she would come back in her weakness, and if the place had been a rest to her before, it would be a sanctuary now. She envied Ralph his dying, for if one were thinking of rest, that was the most perfect of all. To cease utterly, to give it all up and not know anything more. This idea was as sweet as the vision of a cool bath in a marble tank, in a darkened chamber, in a hot land. She had moments, indeed, in her journey from Rome which were almost as good as being dead. She sat in her corner, so motionless, so passive, simply with the sense of being carried, so detached from hope and regret, that she recalled to herself one of those Etruscan figures couched upon the receptacle of their ashes. There was nothing to regret now that was all over. Not only the time of her folly, but the time of her repentance was far. The only thing to regret was that Madame Merle had been so, well, so unimaginable. Just here her intelligence dropped, from literal inability to say what it was that Madame Merle had been. Whatever it was, it was for Madame Merle herself to regret it, and doubtless she would do so in America, where she had announced she was going. It concerned Isabel no more. She only had an impression that she should never again see Madame Merle. This impression carried her into the future, of which from time to time she had a mutilated glimpse. She saw herself in the distant years, still in the attitude of a woman who had her life to live, and these intimations contradicted the spirit of the present hour. It might be desirable to get quite away, really away further away than little grey-green England, but this privilege was evidently to be denied her. Deep in her soul, deeper than any appetite for renunciation, was the sense that life would be her business for a long time to come. And at moments there was something inspiring, almost enlivening, in the conviction. It was a proof of strength, it was a proof she should some day be happy again. It couldn't be she was to live only to suffer. She was still young, after all, and a great many things might happen to her yet. To live only to suffer, only to feel the injury of life repeated and enlarged. It seemed to her she was too valuable, too capable for that. Then she wondered if it were vain and stupid to think so well of herself. When had it even been a guarantee to be valuable? Wasn't all history full of the destruction of precious things? Wasn't it much more probable that if one were fine one would suffer? It involved then perhaps an admission that one had a certain grossness. But Isabel recognized, 
as it passed before her eyes, the quick, vague shadow of a long future. She should never escape. She should last to the end. Then the middle years wrapped about her again, and the grey curtain of her indifference closed her in. Henrietta kissed her, as Henrietta usually kissed, as if she were afraid she should be caught doing it, and then Isabel stood there in the crowd, looking about her, looking for her servant. She asked nothing. She wished to wait. She had a sudden perception that she should be helped. She rejoiced Henrietta had come. There was something terrible in an arrival in London. The dusky, smoky, far-arching vault of the station, the strange, livid light, the dense, dark, pushing crowd, filled her with a nervous fear, and made her put her arm into her friend's. She remembered she had once liked these things. They seemed part of a mighty spectacle in which there was something that touched her. She remembered how she walked away from Euston, in the winter dusk, in the crowded streets, five years before. She could not have done that today, and the incident came before her as the deed of another person. "'It's too beautiful that you should have come,' said Henrietta, looking at her as if she thought Isabel might be prepared to challenge the proposition. "'If you hadn't—if you hadn't—well, I don't know,' remarked Miss Stackpole, hinting ominously at her powers of disapproval. Isabel looked about without seeing her maid. Her eyes rested on another figure, however, which she felt she had seen before, and in a moment she recognized the genial countenance of Mr. Bantling. He stood a little apart, and it was not in the power of the multitude that pressed about him to make him yield an inch of the ground he had taken, that of abstracting himself discreetly while the two ladies performed their embraces. "'There's Mr. Bantling,' said Isabel gently, irrelevantly, scarcely caring much now whether she should find her maid or not. "'Oh, yes, he goes everywhere with me. Come here, Mr. Bantling!' Henrietta exclaimed, whereupon the gallant bachelor advanced with a smile, a smile tempered, however, by the gravity of the occasion. "'Isn't it lovely she has come?' Henrietta asked. "'He knows all about it,' she added. "'We had quite a discussion. He said you wouldn't. I said you would.' "'I thought you always agreed.' Isabel smiled in return. She felt she could smile now. She had seen, in an instant, in Mr. Bantling's brave eyes, that he had good news for her. They seemed to say he wished her to remember he was an old friend of her cousin, that he understood, that it was all right. Isabel gave him her hand. She thought of him extravagantly as a beautiful, blameless knight. "'Oh, I always agree,' said Mr. Bantling. "'But she doesn't, you know.' "'Didn't I tell you that a maid was a nuisance?' Henrietta inquired. "'Your young lady has probably remained at Calais.' "'I don't care,' said Isabel, looking at Mr. Bantling, whom she had never found so interesting. "'Stay with her while I go and see,' Henrietta commanded, leaving the two for a moment together. They stood there at first in silence, and then Mr. Bantling asked Isabel how it had been on the channel. "'Very fine. No, I believe it was very rough,' she said to her companion's obvious surprise, after which she added, "'You've been to Gardencourt, I know.' "'Now how do you know that?' "'I can't tell you, except that you look like a person who has been to Gardencourt.' "'Do you think I look awfully sad? It's awfully sad, though, you know.' "'I don't believe you ever look awfully sad. You look awfully kind,' said Isabel, with a breadth that cost her no effort. It seemed to her she should never again feel a superficial embarrassment. 
Poor Mr. Bantling, however, was still in this inferior stage. He blushed a good deal and laughed. He assured her that he was often very blue, and that when he was blue he was awfully fierce. "'You can ask Miss Stackpole, you know. I was at Garden Court two days ago.' "'Did you see my cousin?' "'Only for a little. But he had been seeing people. Warburton had been there the day before. Ralph was just the same as usual, except that he was in bed and that he looks tremendously ill, and that he can't speak.' Mr. Bantling pursued. He was awfully jolly and funny all the same. He was just as clever as ever. It's awfully wretched. Even in the crowded, noisy station, this simple picture was vivid. Was that late in the day? Yes. I went on purpose. We thought you'd like to know. I'm greatly obliged to you. Can I go down tonight? Ah, I don't think she'll let you go, said Mr. Bantling. She wants you to stop with her. I made Touchett's man promise to telegraph me to-day, and I found the telegram an hour ago at my club. Quiet and easy, that's what it says, and it's dated two o'clock. So, you see, you can wait till to-morrow. You must be awfully tired. Yes, I'm awfully tired. And I thank you again. Oh, said Mr. Bantling, we were certain you would like the last news. On which Isabel vaguely noticed that he and Henrietta seemed after all to agree. Miss Stackpole came back with Isabel's maid, whom she had caught in the act of proving her utility. This excellent person, instead of losing herself in the crowd, had simply attended to her mistress's luggage, so that the latter was now at liberty to leave the station. "'You know you're not to think of going to the country tonight,' Henrietta remarked to her. "'It doesn't matter whether there's a train or not. You're to come straight to me in Wimpole Street. There isn't a corner to be had in London, but I've got you one all the same.' It isn't a Roman palace, but it will do for a night. I'll do whatever you wish, Isabel said. You'll come and answer a few questions. That's what I wish. She doesn't say anything about dinner, does she, Mrs. Osmond? Mr. Bantling inquired jocosely. Henrietta fixed him a moment with her speculative gaze. I see you're in a great hurry to get your own. You'll be at the Paddington station tomorrow at ten. Don't come for my sake, Mr. Bantling, said Isabel. "'He'll come for mine,' Henrietta declared, as she ushered her friend into a cab. And later, in a large, dusky parlour in Wimpole Street, to do her justice there had been dinner enough, she asked those questions to which she had alluded at the station. "'Did your husband make you a scene about your coming?' That was Miss Stackpole's first enquiry. "'No, I can't say he made a scene.' "'He didn't object, then?' "'Yes, he objected very much.' But it was not what you'd call a scene. What was it, then? It was a very quiet conversation. Henrietta for a moment regarded her guest. It must have been hellish, she then remarked. And Isabel didn't deny that it had been hellish. But she confined herself to answering Henrietta's questions, which was easy, as they were tolerably definite. For the present she offered her no new information. Well said Miss Stackpole at last. I've only one criticism to make. I don't see why you promised little Miss Osmond to go back. I'm not sure I myself see now, Isabel replied, but I did then. If you've forgotten your reason, perhaps you won't return. Isabel waited a moment. Perhaps I shall find another. You'll certainly never find a good one. In a default of a better, my having promised will do, Isabel suggested. Yes, that's why I hate it. 
don't speak of it now i've a little time coming away was a complication but what will going back be you must remember after all that he won't make you a scene said henrietta with much intention he will though isabel answered gravely it won't be the scene of a moment it will be a scene of the rest of my life for some minutes the two women sat and considered this remainder and then miss stackpole to change the subject as isabel had requested announced abruptly i've been to stay with lady pencil ah the invitation came at last yes it took five years but this time she wanted to see me naturally enough it was more natural than i think you know said henrietta who fixed her eyes on a distant point and then she added turning suddenly isabel archer i beg your pardon you don't know why because i criticized you and yet i've gone further than you mr osmond at least was born on the other side it was a moment before isabel grasped her meaning this sense was so modestly or at least so ingeniously veiled isabel's mind was not possessed at present with the comicality of things but she greeted with a quick laugh the image that her companion had raised she immediately recovered herself however and with the right excess of intensity henrietta stackpole she said are you going to give up your country yes my poor isabel i am i won't pretend to deny it i look the fact in the face i'm going to marry mr bantling and locate right here in london it seems very strange said isabel smiling now well yes i suppose it does i've come to it little by little i think i know what i'm doing but i don't know as i can explain one can't explain one's marriage isabel answered and yours doesn't need to be explained mr bantling isn't a riddle no he isn't a bad pun or even a high flight of american humour he has a beautiful nature henrietta went on i've studied him for many years and i see right through him he's as clear as the style of a good prospectus he's not intellectual but he appreciates intellect on the other hand he doesn't exaggerate its claims i sometimes think we do in the united states ah said isabel you're changed indeed it's the first time i've ever heard you say anything against your native land i only say that we're too infatuated with mere brain power that after all isn't a vulgar fault but i am changed a woman has to change a good deal to marry i hope you'll be very happy you will at last over here see something of the inner life henrietta gave a little significant sigh that's the key to the mystery i believe i couldn't endure to be kept off now i've as good a right as any one she added with artless elation isabel was duly diverted but there was a certain melancholy in her view henrietta after all had confessed herself human and feminine henrietta whom she had hitherto regarded as a light keen flame a disembodied voice it was a disappointment to find she had personal susceptibilities that she was subject to common passions and that her intimacy with mr bantling had not been completely original there was a want of originality in her marrying him there was even a kind of stupidity and for a moment to isabel's sense the dreariness of the world took on a deeper tinge a little later indeed she reflected that mr bantling himself at least was original but she didn't see how henrietta could give up her country 
she herself had relaxed her hold of it but it had never been her country as it had been henrietta's she presently asked her if she had enjoyed her visit to lady pencil oh yes said henrietta she didn't know what to make of me and was that very enjoyable very much so because she's supposed to be a mastermind she thinks she knows everything but she doesn't understand a woman of my modern type it would be so much easier for her if i were only a little better or a little worse she's so puzzled i believe she thinks it's my duty to go and do something immoral she thinks it's immoral that i should marry her brother but after all that isn't immoral enough and she'll never understand my mixture never she's not so intelligent as her brother then said isabel he appears to have understood oh no he hasn't cried miss stackpole with decision i really believe that's what he wants to marry me for just to find out the mystery and the proportions of it that's a fixed idea a kind of fascination it's very good in you to humour it oh well said henrietta i've something to find out too and isabel saw that she had not renounced an allegiance but planned an attack she was at last about to grapple in earnest with england isabel also perceived however on the morrow at the paddington station where she found herself at ten o'clock in the company both of miss stackpole and mr bantling that the gentleman bore his perplexities lightly if he had not found out everything he had found out at least the great point that miss stackpole would not be wanting in initiative it was evident that in the selection of a wife he had been on his guard against this deficiency henrietta has told me and i'm very glad isabel said as she gave him her hand i dare say you think it awfully odd mr bantling replied resting on his neat umbrella yes i think it awfully odd you can't think it so awfully odd as i do but i've always rather liked striking out a line said mr bantling serenely End of chapter 53chapter fifty four of the portrait of a lady by henry james this librivox recording is in the public domain isabel's arrival at gardencourt on this second occasion was even quieter than it had been on the first ralph touchett kept but a small household and to the new servants mrs osmond was a stranger so that instead of being conducted to her own apartment she was coldly shown into the drawing-room and left to wait while her name was carried up to her aunt she waited a long time mrs touchett appeared in no hurry to come to her she grew impatient at last she grew nervous and scared as scared as if the objects about her had begun to show for conscious things watching her trouble with grotesque grimaces the day was dark and cold the dusk was thick in the corners of the wide brown rooms the house was perfectly still with a stillness that isabel remembered it had filled all the place for days before the death of her uncle she left the drawing-room and wandered about strolled into the library and along the gallery of pictures where in the deep silence her footstep made an echo nothing was changed she recognized everything she had seen years before it might have been only yesterday she had stood there she envied the security of valuable pieces which change by no hair's breadth only grow in value while their owners lose inch by inch youth happiness beauty 
and she became aware that she was walking about as her aunt had done on the day she had come to see her in Albany. She was changed enough since then. That had been the beginning. It suddenly struck her that if her aunt Lydia had not come that day in just that way and found her alone, everything might have been different. She might have had another life, and she might have been a woman more blessed. She stopped in the gallery in front of a small picture, a charming and precious Bonington, upon which her eyes rested a long time. But she was not looking at the picture. She was wondering whether, if her aunt had not come that day in Albany, she would have married Caspar Goodwood. Mrs. Touchett appeared at last, just after Isabel had returned to the big, uninhabited drawing-room. She looked a good deal older, but her eye was as bright as ever and her head as erect, her thin lips seemed a repository of latent meanings. She wore a little grey dress of the most undecorated fashion, and Isabel wondered, as she had wondered the first time, if her remarkable kinswoman resembled more a queen regent or the matron of a jail. Her lips felt very thin indeed on Isabel's hot cheek. "'I've kept you waiting because I've been sitting with Ralph,' Mrs. Touchett said. "'The nurse had gone to luncheon, and I had taken her place. He has a man who's supposed to look after him, but the man's good for nothing. He's always looking out of the window, as if there were anything to see. I didn't wish to move because Ralph seemed to be sleeping, and I was afraid the sound would disturb him. I waited till the nurse came back.' I remembered you knew the house. I find I know it better even than I thought. I've been walking everywhere, Isabel answered. And then she asked if Ralph slept much. He lies with his eyes closed. He doesn't move. But I'm not sure that it's always sleep. Will he see me? Can he speak to me? Mrs. Touchett declined the office of saying, You can try him was the limit of her extravagance. And then she offered to conduct Isabel to her room. "'I thought they had taken you there. But it's not my house. It's Ralph's, and I don't know what they do. They must at least have taken your luggage. I don't suppose you've brought much. Not that I care, however. I believe they've given you the same room you had before. When Ralph heard you were coming, he said you must have that one.' "'Did he say anything else?' "'Oh, my dear, he doesn't chatter as he used.' cried Mrs. Touchett, as she preceded her niece up the staircase. It was the same room, and something told Isabel it had not been slept in since she occupied it. Her luggage was there, and was not voluminous. Mrs. Touchett sat down a moment with her eyes upon it. "'Is there really no hope?' our young woman asked as she stood before her. "'None whatever. There never has been. It has not been a successful life.' No, it has only been a beautiful one. Isabel found herself already contradicting her aunt. She was irritated by her dryness. I don't know what you mean by that. There's no beauty without health. That is a very odd dress to travel in. Isabel glanced at her garment. I left Rome at an hour's notice. I took the first that came. Your sisters in America wish to know how you dress. That seemed to be their principal interest. I wasn't able to tell them, but they seemed to have the right idea, that you never wear anything less than black brocade. They think I'm more brilliant than I am. I'm afraid to tell them the truth," said Isabel. Lily wrote me you had dined with her. She invited me four times, and I went once. 
After the second time she should have let me alone. The dinner was very good. It must have been expensive. Her husband has a very bad manner. Did I enjoy my visit to America? Why should I have enjoyed it? I didn't go for my pleasure. These were interesting items, but Mrs. Touchett soon left her niece, whom she was to meet in half an hour at the midday meal. For this repast the two ladies faced each other at an abbreviated table in the melancholy dining-room. Here, after a little, Isabel saw her aunt not to be so dry as she appeared, and her old pity for the poor woman's inexpressiveness, her want of regret, of disappointment, came back to her. Unmistakably she would have found it a blessing to-day to be able to feel a defeat, a mistake, even a shame or two. She wondered if she were not even missing those enrichments of consciousness and privately trying, reaching out for some aftertaste of life, dregs of the banquet, the testimony of pain or the cold recreation of remorse. On the other hand, perhaps she was afraid. If she should begin to know remorse at all, it might take her too far. Isabel could perceive, however, how it had come over her dimly that she had failed of something, that she saw herself in the future as an old woman without memories. Her little, sharp face looked tragical. She told her niece that Ralph had as yet not moved, but that he probably would be able to see her before dinner. And then in a moment she added that he had seen Lord Warburton the day before, an announcement which startled Isabel a little, as it seemed an intimation that this personage was in the neighbourhood and that an accident might bring them together. Such an accident would not be happy. She had not come to England to struggle again with Lord Warburton. She none the less presently said to her aunt that he had been very kind to Ralph. She had seen something of that in Rome. "'He has something else to think of now,' Mrs. Touchett returned, and she paused with a gaze like a gimlet. Isabel saw she meant something, and instantly guessed what she meant. But her reply concealed her guess, her heart beat faster, and she wished to gain a moment. "'Ah, yes, the House of Lords and all that.' "'He's not thinking of the Lords. He's thinking of the ladies. At least he's thinking of one of them. He told Ralph he's engaged to be married.' "'Oh, to be married!' Isabel mildly exclaimed. "'Unless he breaks it off. He seemed to think Ralph would like to know. Poor Ralph can't go to the wedding, though I believe it's to take place very soon.' and who's the young lady a member of the aristocracy lady flora lady felicia something of that sort i'm very glad isabel said it must be a sudden decision sudden enough i believe a courtship of three weeks it has only just been made public i'm very glad isabel repeated with a larger emphasis she knew her aunt was watching her looking for the signs of some imputed soreness, and the desire to prevent her companion from seeing anything of this kind enabled her to speak in the tone of quick satisfaction, the tone almost of relief. Mrs. Touchett, of course, followed the tradition that ladies, even married ones, regard the marriage of their old lovers as an offence to themselves. Isabel's first care, therefore, was to show that, however that might be in general, she was not offended now. But meanwhile, as I say, her heart beat faster, and if she sat for some moments thoughtful, she presently forgot Mrs. Touchett's observation. It was not because she had lost an admirer. Her imagination had traversed half Europe. It halted, panting, and even trembling a little, 
in the city of Rome. She figured herself announcing to her husband that Lord Warburton was to lead a bride to the altar, and she was, of course, not aware how extremely wan she must have looked while she made this intellectual effort. But at last she collected herself and said to her aunt, "'He was sure to do it some time or other.' Mrs. Touchett was silent. Then she gave a little sharp shake of the head. "'Ha! Huh, my dear, you're beyond me!' she cried suddenly. They went on with their luncheon in silence. Isabel felt as if she had heard of Lord Warburton's death. She had known him only as a suitor, and now that was all over. He was dead for poor Pansy. By Pansy he might have lived. A servant had been hovering about. At last Mrs. Touchett requested him to leave them alone. She had finished her meal. She sat with her hands folded on the edge of the table. "'I should like to ask you three questions.' she observed when the servant had gone. Three are a great many. I can't do with less. I've been thinking. They're all very good ones. That's what I'm afraid of. The best questions are the worst, Isabel answered. Mrs. Touchett had pushed back her chair, and as her niece left the table and walked, rather consciously, to one of the deep windows, she felt herself followed by her eyes. "'Have you ever been sorry you didn't marry Lord Warburton?' Mrs. Touchett inquired. Isabel shook her head slowly, but not heavily. "'No, dear aunt.' "'Good. I ought to tell you that I propose to believe what you say.' "'Your believing me is an immense temptation,' she declared, smiling still. "'A temptation to lie. I don't recommend you to do that.' for when I'm misinformed I'm as dangerous as a poisoned rat. I don't mean to crow over you. It's my husband who doesn't get on with me, said Isabel. I could have told him he wouldn't. I don't call that crowing over you, Mrs. Touchett added. Do you still like Serena Merle? she went on. Not as I once did. But it doesn't matter, for she's going to America. To America? She must have done something very bad. Yes, very bad. May I ask what it is? She made a convenience of me. Ah, cried Mrs. Touchett. So she did of me. She does of every one. She'll make a convenience of America, said Isabel, smiling again, and glad that her aunt's questions were over. It was not till the evening that she was able to see Ralph. He had been dozing all day. At least he had been lying unconscious. The doctor was there, but after a while went away. The local doctor, who had attended his father, and whom Ralph liked. He came three or four times a day. He was deeply interested in his patient. Ralph had had Sir Matthew Hope, but he had got tired of this celebrated man, to whom he had asked his mother to send word he was now dead, and was therefore without further need of medical advice. Mrs. Touchett had simply written to Sir Matthew that her son disliked him. On the day of Isabel's arrival, Ralph gave no sign, as I have related, for many hours, but toward evening he raised himself and said he knew that she had come. How he knew was not apparent, inasmuch as for fear of exciting him no one had offered the information. Isabel came in and sat by his bed in the dim light. There was only a shaded candle in the corner of the room. She had told the nurse she might go. She herself would sit with him for the rest of the evening. 
he had opened his eyes and recognized her and had moved his hand which lay helpless beside him so that she might take it but he was unable to speak he closed his eyes again and remained perfectly still only keeping her hand in his own she sat with him a long time till the nurse came back but he gave no further sign he might have passed away while she looked at him he was already the figure and pattern of death she had thought him far gone in rome and this was worse there was but one change possible now there was a strange tranquillity in his face it was as still as the lid of a box with this he was a mere lattice of bones when he opened his eyes to greet her it was as if she were looking into immeasurable space it was not till midnight that the nurse came back but the hours to isabel had not seemed long it was exactly what she had come for if she had come simply to wait she found ample occasion for he lay three days in a kind of grateful silence he recognized her and at moments seemed to wish to speak but he found no voice then he closed his eyes again as if he too were waiting for something for something that would certainly come he was so absolutely quiet that it seemed to her what was coming had already arrived and yet she never lost the sense that they were still together but they were not always together there were other hours that she passed in wandering through the empty house and listening for a voice that was not poor ralph's she had a constant fear she thought it possible her husband would write to her but he remained silent and she only got a letter from florence and from the countess gemini ralph however spoke at last on the evening of the third day i feel better to-night he murmured abruptly in the soundless dimness of her vigil i think i can say something she sank upon her knees beside his pillow took his thin hand in her own begged him not to make an effort not to tire himself his face was of necessity serious it was incapable of the muscular play of a smile but its owner apparently had not lost a perception of incongruities what does it matter if i'm tired when i've all eternity to rest there's no harm in making an effort when it's the very last of all don't people always feel better just before the end i've often heard that it's what i was waiting for ever since you've been here i thought it would come i tried two or three times i was afraid you'd get tired of sitting there he spoke slowly with painful breaks and long pauses his voice seemed to come from a distance when he ceased he lay with his face turned to isabel and his large unwinking eyes open into her own it was very good of you to come he went on i thought you would but i wasn't sure i was not sure either till i came said isabel you've been like an angel beside my bed you know they talk about the angel of death it's the most beautiful of all you've been like that as if you were waiting for me i was not waiting for your death i was waiting for for this this is not death dear ralph not for you no there's nothing makes us feel so much alive as to see others die that's the sensation of life the sense that we remain i've had it even i 
but now I'm of no use but to give it to others. With me, it's all over. And then he paused. Isabel bowed her head further, till it rested on the two hands that were clasped upon his own. She couldn't see him now, but his faraway voice was close to her ear. Isabel, he went on suddenly, I wish it were over for you. She answered nothing. She had burst into sobs. She remained so with her buried face. He lay silent, listening to her sobs. At last he gave a long groan. Ah, what is it you have done for me? What is it you did for me? she cried, her now extreme agitation half smothered by her attitude. She had lost all her shame, all wish to hide things. Now he must know. She wished him to know, for it brought them supremely together, and he was beyond the reach of pain. You did something once. You know it. Oh, Ralph, you've been everything. What have I done for you? What can I do today? I would die if you could live. But I don't wish you to live. I would die myself not to lose you. Her voice was as broken as his own, and full of tears and anguish. You won't lose me. You'll keep me. Keep me in your heart. I shall be nearer to you than I've ever been. Dear Isabel, life is better. For in life there's love. Death is good, but there's no love. I never thanked you. I never spoke. I never was what I should be. Isabel went on. She felt a passionate need to cry out and accuse herself, to let her sorrow possess her. All her troubles for the moment became single and melted together into this present pain. What must you have thought of me? Yet how could I know? I never knew, and I only know today because there are people less stupid than I. Don't mind people, said Ralph. I think I'm glad to leave people. She raised her head and her clasped hands. She seemed for a moment to pray to him. Is it true? Is it true? She asked. True that you've been stupid? Oh, no, said Ralph with a sensible intention of wit. That you made me rich? That all I have is yours? He turned away his head and for some time said nothing. Then at last. Oh, don't speak of that. That was not happy. Slowly he moved his face toward her again, and they once more saw each other. But for that. But for that. And he paused. I believe I ruined you, he wailed. She was full of the sense that he was beyond the reach of pain. He seemed already so little of this world. But even if she had not had it she would have still spoken, for nothing mattered now but the only knowledge that was not pure anguish, the knowledge that they were looking at the truth together. "'He married me for the money,' she said. She wished to say everything. She was afraid he might die before she had done so. He gazed at her a little, and for the first time his fixed eyes lowered their lids. But he raised them in a moment. And then—he was greatly in love with you, he answered. 
Yes, he was in love with me. But he wouldn't have married me if I had been poor. I don't hurt you in saying that. How can I? I only want you to understand. I always tried to keep you from understanding, but that's all over. I always understood, said Ralph. I thought you did, and I didn't like it. But now I like it. You don't hurt me. You make me very happy. And as Ralph said this, there was an extraordinary gladness in his voice. She bent her head again and pressed her lips to the back of his hand. I always understood, he continued, though it was so strange, so pitiful. You wanted to look at life for yourself, but you were not allowed. You were punished for your wish. You were ground in the very mill of the conventional. Oh, yes, I've been punished, Isabel sobbed. He listened to her a little, and then continued. Was he very bad about your coming? He made it very hard for me, but I don't care. It is all over, then, between you. Oh, no, I don't think anything's over. Are you going back to him? Ralph gasped. I don't know. I can't tell. I shall stay here as long as I may. I don't want to think. I needn't think. I don't care for anything but you, and that's enough for the present. It will last a little yet. Here, on my knees, with you dying in my arms, I'm happier than I have been for a long time. And I want you to be happy, not to think of anything sad, only to feel that I'm near you, and I love you. Why should there be pain? In such hours as this, what have we to do with pain? That's not the deepest thing. There's something deeper. Ralph evidently found from moment to moment greater difficulty in speaking. He had to wait longer to collect himself. At first he appeared to make no response to these last words. He let a long time elapse. Then he murmured simply, You must stay here. I should like to stay, as long as seems right. As seems right? As seems right? He repeated her words. Yes, you think a great deal about that. Of course, one must. You're very tired, said Isabel. I'm very tired. You said just now that pain's not the deepest thing. No. No, but it's very deep. If I could stay. For me, you'll always be here, she softly interrupted. It was easy to interrupt him. But he went on after a moment. It passes, after all. It's passing now. But love remains. I don't know why we should suffer so much. Perhaps I shall find out. There are many things in life. You're very young. I feel very old, said Isabel. You'll grow young again. That's how I see you. I don't believe. I don't believe. But he stopped again. His strength failed him. She begged him to be quiet now. We needn't speak to understand each other, she said. 
I don't believe that such a generous mistake as yours can hurt you for more than a little. Oh, Ralph, I'm very happy now, she cried through her tears. And remember this, he continued, that if you've been hated, you've also been loved. Oh, but Isabel, adored. He just audibly and lingeringly breathed. Oh, my brother, she cried, with a movement of still deeper prostration. End of chapter 54「She knew that a spirit was standing by her bed. She had lain down without undressing, it being her belief that Ralph would not outlast the night. She had no inclination to sleep. She was waiting, and such waiting was wakeful. But she closed her eyes. She believed that as the night wore on she should hear a knock at her door. She heard no knock, but at the time the darkness began vaguely to grow grey, she started up from her pillow as abruptly as if she had received a summons. It seemed to her for an instant that he was standing there, a vague, hovering figure in the vagueness of the room. She stared a moment. She saw his white face, his kind eyes. Then she saw there was nothing. She was not afraid. She was only sure. She quitted the place and in her certainty passed through dark corridors and down a flight of oaken steps that shone in the vague light of a hall window. Outside Ralph's door she stopped a moment, listening, but she seemed to hear only the hush that filled it. She opened the door with a hand as gentle as if she were lifting a veil from the face of the dead, and saw Mrs. Touchett sitting motionless and upright beside the couch of her son, with one of his hands in her own. The doctor was on the other side, with poor Ralph's further wrist resting in his professional fingers. The two nurses were at the foot between them. Mrs. Touchett took no notice of Isabel, but the doctor looked at her very hard. Then he gently placed Ralph's hand in a proper position, close beside him. The nurse looked at her very hard, too, and no one said a word. But Isabel only looked at what she had come to see. It was fairer than Ralph had ever been in life, and there was a strange resemblance to the face of his father, which six years before she had seen lying on the same pillow. She went to her aunt and put her arm around her, and Mrs. Touchett, who as a general thing neither invited nor enjoyed caresses, submitted for a moment to this one, rising, as might be, to take it. But she was stiff and dry-eyed, her acute white face was terrible. "'Dear Aunt Lydia,' Isabel murmured, "'Go, and thank God you've no child,' said Mrs. Touchett, disengaging herself. 
three days after this a considerable number of people found time at the height of the london season to take a morning train down to a quiet station in berkshire and spend half an hour in a small grey church which stood within an easy walk it was in the green burial place of this edifice that mrs touchett consigned her son to earth she stood herself at the edge of the grave and isabel stood beside her the sexton himself had not a more practical interest in the scene than mrs touchett it was a solemn occasion but neither a harsh nor a heavy one there was a certain geniality in the appearance of things the weather had changed to fair the day one of the last of the treacherous maytime was warm and windless and the air had the brightness of the hawthorn and the blackbird if it was sad to think of poor touchett it was not too sad since death for him had had no violence he had been dying so long he was so ready everything had been so expected and prepared there were tears in isabel's eyes but they were not tears that blinded she looked through them at the beauty of the day the splendour of nature the sweetness of the old english churchyard the bowed heads of good friends lord warburton was there and a group of gentlemen all unknown to her several of whom as she afterwards learned were connected with the bank and there were others whom she knew miss stackpole was among the first with honest mr bantling beside her and caspar goodwood lifting his head higher than the rest bowing it rather less during much of the time isabel was conscious of mr goodwood's gaze he looked at her somewhat harder than he usually looked in public while the others had fixed their eyes upon the churchyard turf but she never let him see that she saw him she thought of him only to wonder that he was still in england she found she had taken for granted that after accompanying ralph to garden court he had gone away she remembered how little it was a country that pleased him he was there however very distinctly there and something in his attitude seemed to say that he was there with a complex intention she wouldn't meet his eyes though there was doubtless sympathy in them he made her rather uneasy with the dispersal of the little group he disappeared and the only person who came to speak to her though several spoke to mrs touchett was henrietta stackpole henrietta had been crying ralph had said to isabel that he hoped she would remain at garden court and she made no immediate motion to leave the place she said to herself that it was but common charity to stay a little with her aunt it was fortunate she had so good a formula otherwise she might have been greatly in want of one her errand was over she had done what she had left her husband to do she had a husband in a foreign city counting the hours of her absence in such a case one needed an excellent motive he was not one of the best husbands but that didn't alter the case certain obligations were involved in the very fact of marriage and were quite independent of the quantity of enjoyment extracted from it isabel thought of her husband as little as might be but now that she was at a distance beyond its spell she thought with a kind of spiritual shudder of rome there was a penetrating chill in the image and she drew back into the deepest shade of garden court she lived from day to day postponing closing her eyes trying not to think she knew she must decide but she decided nothing her coming itself had not been a decision on that occasion she had simply started osmond gave no sound and now evidently would give none he would leave it all to her 
From Pansy she heard nothing, but that was very simple. Her father had told her not to write. Mrs. Touchett accepted Isabel's company, but offered her no assistance. She appeared to be absorbed in considering, without enthusiasm but with perfect lucidity, the new conveniences of her own situation. Mrs. Touchett was not an optimist, but even from painful occurrences she managed to extract a certain utility. This consisted in the reflection that, after all, such things happened to other people and not to herself. Death was disagreeable, but in this case it was her son's death, not her own. She had never flattered herself that her own would be disagreeable to any one but Mrs. Touchett. She was better off than poor Ralph, who had left all the commodities of life behind him, and indeed all the security, since the worst of dying was, to Mrs. Touchett's mind, that it exposed one to be taken advantage of. For herself she was on the spot, there was nothing so good as that. She made known to Isabel very punctually, it was the evening her son was buried, several of Ralph's testamentary arrangements. He had told her everything, had consulted her about everything. He left her no money, of course she had no need of money. He left her the furniture of Garden Court, exclusive of the pictures and books and the use of the place for a year, after which it was to be sold. The money produced by the sale was to constitute an endowment for a hospital for poor persons suffering from the malady of which he had died, and of this portion of the will Lord Warburton was appointed executor. The rest of his property, which was to be withdrawn from the bank, was disposed of in various bequests, several of them to those cousins in Vermont to whom his father had already been so bountiful. Then there were a number of small legacies. "'Some of them are extremely peculiar,' said Mrs. Touchett. "'He has left considerable sums to persons I never heard of. He gave me a list, and I asked then who some of them were, and he told me they were people who at various times had seemed to like him. Apparently he thought you didn't like him, for he hasn't left you a penny. It was his opinion that you had been handsomely treated by his father, which I'm bound to say I think you were, though I don't mean that I ever heard him complain of it. The pictures are to be dispersed. He has distributed them about one by one as little keepsakes. The most valuable of the collection goes to Lord Warburton. And what do you think he has done with his library? It sounds like a practical joke. He has left it to your friend Miss Stackpole, in recognition of her services to literature. Does he mean her following him up from Rome? Was that a service to literature? It contains a great many rare and valuable books, and as she can't carry it about the world in her trunk, he recommends her to sell it at auction. She will sell it, of course, at Christie's, and with the proceeds she'll set up a newspaper. Will that be a service to literature? This question Isabel forbore to answer, as it exceeded the little interrogatory to which she had deemed it necessary to submit on her arrival. Besides, she had never been less interested in literature than to-day, as she found when she occasionally took down from the shelf one of the rare and valuable volumes of which Mrs. Touchett had spoken. She was quite unable to read. Her attention had never been so little at her command. One afternoon in the library, about a week after the ceremony in the churchyard, she was trying to fix it for an hour. But her eyes often wandered from the book in her hand to the open window, which looked down the long avenue. It was in this way that she saw a modest vehicle approach the door, and perceived Lord Warburton sitting, in a rather uncomfortable attitude, in a corner of it. He had always had a high standard of courtesy, and it was therefore not remarkable, under the circumstances, 
that he should have taken the trouble to come down from London to call on Mrs. Touchett. It was, of course, Mrs. Touchett he had come to see, and not Mrs. Osmond, and to prove to herself the validity of this thesis, Isabel presently stepped out of the house and wandered away into the park. Since her arrival at Gardencourt she had been but little out of doors, the weather being unfavourable for visiting the grounds. This evening, however, was fine, and at first it struck her as a happy thought to have come out. The theory I have just mentioned was plausible enough, but it brought her little rest, and if you had seen her pacing about you would have said she had a bad conscience. She was not pacified when at the end of a quarter of an hour, finding herself in view of the house, she saw Mrs. Touchett emerge from the portico accompanied by her visitor. Her aunt had evidently proposed to Lord Warburton that they should come in search of her. She was in no humour for visitors, and if she had had a chance, would have drawn back behind one of the great trees. But she saw she had been seen, and that nothing was left to her but to advance. As the lawn at Garden Court was a vast expanse, this took some time, during which she observed that, as he walked beside his hostess, Lord Warburton kept his hands rather stiffly behind him, and his eyes upon the ground. Both persons apparently were silent, but Mrs. Touchett's thin little glance, as she directed it toward Isabel, had even at a distance an expression. It seemed to say, with cutting sharpness, "'Here's the eminently amenable nobleman you might have married.' When Lord Warburton lifted his own eyes, however, that was not what they said. They only said, "'This is rather awkward, you know, and I depend upon you to help me.' He was very grave, very proper, and, for the first time since Isabel had known him, greeted her without a smile. Even in his days of distress he had always begun with a smile. He looked extremely self-conscious. "'Lord Warburton has been so good as to come out to see me,' said Mrs. Touchett. "'He tells me he didn't know you were still here. I know he's an old friend of yours, and as I was told you were not in the house, I brought him out to see for himself.' "'Oh, I saw there was a good train at six-forty. That would get me back in time for dinner," Mrs. Touchett's companion rather irrelevantly explained. "'I'm so glad to find you've not gone.' "'I'm not here for long, you know,' Isabel said with a certain eagerness. "'I suppose not, but I hope it's for some weeks. You came to England sooner than—ah, uh, than you thought?' "'Yes, I came very suddenly.' Mrs. Touchett turned away, as if she were looking at the condition of the grounds, which indeed was not what it should be, while Lord Warburton hesitated a little. Isabel fancied he had been on the point of asking about her husband, rather confusedly, and then had checked himself. He continued immitigably grave, either because he thought it becoming in a place over which death had just passed, or for more personal reasons. If he was conscious of personal reasons it was very fortunate that he had the cover of the former motive, he could make the most of that. Isabel thought of all this. It was not that his face was sad, for that was another matter, but it was strangely inexpressive. "'My sisters would have been so glad to come if they had known you were still here, if they had thought you would see them,' Lord Warburton went on. "'Do kindly let them see you before you leave England.' "'It would give me great pleasure. I have such a friendly recollection of them.' "'I don't know whether you would come to Lockley for a day or two. You know there's always that old promise.' and his lordship coloured a little as he made this suggestion, which gave his face a somewhat more familiar air. 
perhaps i'm not right in saying that just now of course you're not thinking of visiting but i meant what would hardly be a visit my sisters are to be at lockley at whitsuntide for five days and if you could come then as you say you're not to be very long in england i would see that there should be literally no one else isabel wondered if not even the young lady he was to marry would be there with her mamma but she did not express this idea thank you extremely she contented herself with saying i'm afraid i hardly know about whitsuntide but i have your promise haven't i for some other time there was an interrogation in this but isabel let it pass she looked at her interlocutor a moment and the result of her observation was that as had happened before she felt sorry for him take care you don't miss your train she said and then she added i wish you every happiness he blushed again more than before and he looked at his watch ah yes six forty i haven't much time but i've a fly at the door thank you very much it was not apparent whether the thanks applied to her having reminded him of his train or to the more sentimental remark good-bye mrs osmond good-bye he shook hands with her without meeting her eyes and then he turned to mrs touchett who had wandered back to them with her his parting was equally brief and in a moment the two ladies saw him move with long steps across the lawn are you sure he's to be married isabel asked of her aunt i can't be surer than he but he seems sure i congratulated him and he accepted it ah said isabel i give it up while her aunt returned to the house and to those avocations which the visitor had interrupted she gave it up but she still thought of it thought of it while she strolled again under the great oaks whose shadows were long upon the acres of turf at the end of a few minutes she found herself near a rustic bench which a moment after she had looked at it struck her as an object recognized it was not simply that she had seen it before nor even that she had sat upon it it was that on this spot something important had happened to her that the place had an air of association then she remembered that she had been sitting there six years before when a servant brought her from the house the letter in which caspar goodwood informed her that he had followed her to europe and that when she had read the letter she looked up to hear lord warburton announcing that he should like to marry her it was indeed an historical an interesting bench she stood and looked at it as if it might have something to say to her she wouldn't sit down on it now she felt rather afraid of it she only stood before it and while she stood the past came back to her in one of those rushing waves of emotion by which persons of sensibility are visited at odd hours the effect of this agitation was a sudden sense of being very tired under the influence of which she overcame her scruples and sank into the rustic seat i have said that she was restless and unable to occupy herself and whether or no if you had seen her there you would have admired the justice of the former epithet you would at least have allowed that at this moment she was the image of a victim of idleness her attitude had a singular absence of purpose her hands hanging at her sides lost themselves in the folds of her black dress her eyes gazed vaguely before her there was nothing to recall her to the house the two ladies in their seclusion dined early and had tea at an indefinite hour how long she had sat in this position she could not have told you 
but the twilight had grown thick when she became aware that she was not alone. She quickly straightened herself, glancing about, and then saw what had become of her solitude. She was sharing it with Caspar Goodwood, who stood looking at her, a few yards off, and whose footfall on the unresonant turf as he came near she had not heard. It occurred to her in the midst of this that it was just so Lord Warburton had surprised her of old. She instantly rose, and as soon as Goodwood saw he was seen, he started forward. She had had time only to rise when, with a motion that looked like violence, but felt like, she knew not what, he grasped her by the wrist and made her sink again into the seat. She closed her eyes. He had not hurt her, it was only a touch, which she had obeyed. But there was something in his face that she wished not to see. That was the way he had looked at her the other day in the churchyard, only at present it was worse. He said nothing at first, she only felt him close to her, beside her on the bench, and pressingly turned to her. It almost seemed to her that no one had ever been so close to her as that. All this, however, took but an instant, at the end of which she had disengaged her wrist, turning her eyes upon her visitant. "'You frightened me,' she said. "'I didn't mean to,' he answered. "'But if I did a little, no matter. I came from London a while ago by the train, but I couldn't come here directly. There was a man at the station who got ahead of me. He took a fly that was there, and I heard him give the order to drive here. I don't know who he was, but I didn't want to come with him. I wanted to see you alone. So I've been waiting and walking about. I've walked all over, and I was just coming to the house when I saw you here. There was a keeper or someone who met me, but that was all right, because I had made his acquaintance when I came here with your cousin. Is that gentleman gone? Are you really alone? I want to speak to you. Goodwood spoke very fast. He was as excited as when they had parted in Rome. Isabel had hoped that condition would subside, and she shrank into herself as she perceived that, on the contrary, he had only let out sail. She had a new sensation. He had never produced it before. It was a feeling of danger. There was indeed something really formidable in his resolution. She gazed straight before her. He, with a hand on each knee, leaned forward, looking deeply into her face. The twilight seemed to darken round them. "'I want to speak to you,' he repeated. "'I've something particular to say. I don't want to trouble you, as I did the other day in Rome. That was of no use. It only distressed you. I couldn't help it. I knew I was wrong. But I'm not wrong now. Please don't think I am.' He went on, with his hard, deep voice melting a moment into entreaty. "'I came here to-day for a purpose. It's very different. It was vain for me to speak to you then, but now I can help you.' She couldn't have told you whether it was because she was afraid, or because such a voice in the darkness seemed of necessity a boon, but she listened to him as she had never listened before. His words dropped deep into her soul. They produced a sort of stillness in all her being, and it was with an effort in a moment that she answered him. "'How can you help me?' she asked in a low tone, as if she were taking what he had said seriously enough to make the inquiry in confidence. "'By inducing you to trust me. Now I know. Today I know. Do you remember what I asked you in Rome? Then I was quite in the dark. But today I know, on good authority. Everything's clear to me today. It was a good thing when you made me come away with your cousin. He was a good man, 
a fine man one of the best he told me how the case stands for you he explained everything he guessed my sentiments he was a member of your family and he left you so long as you should be in england to my care said goodwood as if he were making a great point do you know what he said to me the last time i saw him as he lay there where he died he said do everything you can for her do everything she'll let you isabel suddenly got up you had no business to talk about me why not why not when we talked in that way he demanded following her fast and he was dying when a man's dying it's different she checked the movement she had made to leave him she was listening more than ever it was true that he was not the same as that last time that had been aimless fruitless passion but at present he had an idea which she scented in all her being but it doesn't matter he exclaimed pressing her still harder though now without touching a hem of her garment if touchett had never opened his mouth i should have known all the same i had only to look at you at your cousin's funeral to see what's the matter with you you can't deceive me any more for god's sake be honest with a man who's so honest with you you're the most unhappy of women and your husband's the deadliest of fiends she turned on him as if he had struck her are you mad she cried i've never been so sane i see the whole thing don't think it necessary to defend him but i won't say another word against him i'll speak only of you goodwood added quickly how can you pretend you're not heartbroken you don't know what to do you don't know where to turn it's too late to play a part didn't you leave all that behind in rome touchett knew all about it and i knew it too what it would cost you to come here it will have cost you your life say it will and he flared almost into anger give me one word of truth when i know such a horror as that how could i keep myself from wishing to save you what would you think of me if i should stand still and see you go back to your reward it's awful what you'll have to pay for it that's what touchett said to me i may tell you that mayn't i he was such a near relation cried goodwood making his queer grim point again i'd sooner have been shot than let another man say those things to me but he was different he seemed to me to have the right it was after he got home when he saw he was dying and when i saw it too i understand all about it you're afraid to go back you're perfectly alone you don't know where to turn you can't turn anywhere you know that perfectly now it is therefore that i want you to think of me to think of you isabel said standing before him in the dusk the idea of which she had caught a glimpse a few moments before now loomed large she threw back her head a little she stared at it as if it had been a comet in the sky you don't know where to turn turn straight to me i want to persuade you to trust me goodwood repeated and then he paused with his shining eyes why should you go back why should you go through that ghastly form to get away from you she answered but this expressed only a little of what she felt the rest was that she had never been loved before she had believed it but this was different this was the hot wind of the desert at the approach of which the others dropped dead like mere sweet airs of the garden it wrapped her about it lifted her off her feet while the very taste of it as of something potent 
acrid and strange, forced open her set teeth. At first, in rejoinder to what she had said, it seemed to her that he would break out into greater violence. But after an instant he was perfectly quiet. He wished to prove he was sane, that he had reasoned it all out. "'I want to prevent that, and I think I may, if you'll only for once listen to me. It's too monstrous of you to think of sinking back into that misery, of going to open your mouth to that poisoned air. It's you that are out of your mind. Trust me as if I had the care of you. Why shouldn't we be happy, when it's here before us, when it's so easy? I'm yours for ever, for ever and ever. Here I stand, I'm as firm as a rock. What have you to care about? You've no children. That, perhaps, would be an obstacle. As it is, you've nothing to consider. You must save what you can of your life. You mustn't lose it all simply because you've lost a part. It would be an insult to you to assume that you care for the look of the thing, for what people will say, for the bottomless idiocy of the world. We've nothing to do with all that. We're quite out of it. We look at things as they are. You took the great step in coming away. The next is nothing. It's the natural one. I swear, as I stand here, that a woman deliberately made to suffer is justified in anything in life, in going down into the streets if that will help her. I know how you suffer, and that's why I'm here. We can do absolutely as we please. To whom under the sun do we owe anything? What is it that holds us? What is it that has the smallest right to interfere in such a question as this? Such a question is between ourselves, and to say that is to settle it. Were we born to rot in our misery? Were we born to be afraid? I never knew you afraid. If you'll only trust me, how little you will be disappointed. The world's all before us, and the world's very big. I know something about that. Isabel gave a long murmur, like a creature in pain. It was as if he were pressing something that hurt her. "'The world's very small,' she said at random. She had an immense desire to appear to resist. She said it at random, to hear herself say something, but it was not what she meant. The world, in truth, had never seemed so large. It seemed to open out all round her, to take the form of a mighty sea, where she floated in fathomless waters. She had wanted help, and here was help. It had come in a rushing torrent. I know not whether she believed everything he said, but she believed just then that to let him take her in his arms would be the next best thing to her dying. This belief, for a moment, was a kind of rapture in which she felt herself sink and sink. In the movement she seemed to beat with her feet in order to catch herself, to feel something to rest on. Ah, be mine as I'm yours, she heard her companion cry. He had suddenly given up argument, and his voice seemed to come, harsh and terrible, through a confusion of vaguer sounds. This, however, of course, was but a subjective fact, as the metaphysicians say. The confusion, the noise of waters, all the rest of it, were in her own swimming head. In an instant she became aware of this. "'Do me the greatest kindness of all,' she panted. 
i beseech you to go away oh don't say that don't kill me he cried she clasped her hands her eyes were streaming with tears as you love me as you pity me leave me alone he glared at her a moment through the dusk and the next instant she felt his arms about her and his lips on her own lips his kiss was like white lightning a flash that spread and spread again and stayed and it was extraordinarily as if while she took it she felt each thing in his hard manhood that had least pleased her each aggressive fact of his face his figure his presence justified of its intense identity and made one with this act of possession so had she heard of those wrecked and under water following a train of images before they sink but when darkness returned she was free she never looked about her she only darted from the spot there were lights in the windows of the house they shone far across the lawn in an extraordinarily short time for the distance was considerable she had moved through the darkness for she saw nothing and reached the door here only she paused she looked all about her she listened a little then she put her hand on the latch she had not known where to turn but she knew now there was a very straight path two days afterwards caspar goodwood knocked at the door of the house in wimpole street in which henrietta stackpole occupied furnished lodgings he had hardly removed his hand from the knocker when the door was opened and miss stackpole herself stood before him she had on her hat and jacket she was on the point of going out oh good morning he said i was in hopes i should find mrs osmond henrietta kept him waiting a moment for her reply but there was a good deal of expression about miss stackpole even when she was silent pray what led you to suppose she was here i went down to gardencourt this morning and the servant told me she had come to london he believed she was come to you again miss stackpole held him with an intention of perfect kindness in suspense she came here yesterday and spent the night but this morning she started for rome caspar goodwood was not looking at her his eyes were fastened on the doorstep oh she started he stammered and without finishing his phrase or looking up he stiffly averted himself but he couldn't otherwise move henrietta had come out closing the door behind her and now she put out her hand and grasped his arm look here mr goodwood she said just you wait on which he looked up at her but only to guess from her face with a revulsion that she simply meant he was young she stood shining at him with that cheap comfort and it added on the spot thirty years to his life she walked him away with her however as if she had given him now the key to patience end of chapter fifty five end of the portrait of a lady written by henry james and narrated by elizabeth clatt
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.